نشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الوالي الكريم وصلى الله على أنبياء أجمعين والمسيح والمحسي والمجدد لمن مرسلين أما بعد Are we not the bearers of witness that nothing would exist if Allah didn't create it? And that He is alone and has no part? And that all gratitude is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the sustainer of all the boundless universe. All gratitude is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the generous eternal friend. And send salutations of Allah on all of His prophets and His apostles. And on the Messiah, the anointed one. And on the Mahdi, the God, and on the Mujaddid, the Reform, which was all sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send greetings and we send peace throughout the boundless universe to all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. The man of the hour, airing seven days a week at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On WGAG Radio. Today's broadcast on WWRL. With regards to, uh, let me just preface uh, uh, what I'm going to say here first. Um, with regards now, I was, you know, I, I read the book here, the Antoine called uh, "Remodel to the Flanders." Uh, without getting into uh, any particulars. Uh, certain questions were, were, were raised uh, with regards to uh, uh, the community uh, and, um, and, of course, the amount of suggestion uh, to a certain extent. Uh, suggestions, uh, well, anyway, he addressed them. Some of them, not all of them, in my opinion. But I just wanted to say first that historically I, I have to agree with, uh, with, 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 the, with the teachings here and so on and so forth. But uh, some... Some uh, questions uh, were raised with regards to uh, ascendancy, and one question in particular with regards to uh, 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 Muslims and sex. Or, uh, is, that, is that the name of the book? Sex, sex Lives of the Muslims. Yes. And uh, I just wanted to ask with regards to that. Um, uh, in regards to the ascendancy thing, um, Uh, where they have the, uh, the pictures, uh, the descendancy. Anyway, it was alleged in, in the back by the, um, somebody else in the family that the two pictures, uh, that the third, Khalifa, is that right, Khalifa? Khalifa. Khalifa, uh, Iman Amen, and uh, uh, Abdul Rahman was, was the same person. Salam alaykum. Well, alaykum salam. On page 125 of the photo book. Yes. We start at the top with Muhammad Ahmed al-Mahdi. Yes. The great-grandfather. And then we pass down to his son, which is Imam Abdul Rahman al-Mahdi. Then on the next page, which is the 126th page, yes. we're looking at three of his sons. And one of them is still alive today. The one in the upper right-hand corner, who yes. they're saying is, when they made their mistake, saying is Abdul Rahman. Abdul Rahman died in 1959. This man here, Ahmed, is still alive today. Into that. He was here, in fact, a couple of months ago, right in, in, in the mouth, visiting The one, that's the one that's in 1935 and still living. That's why right. he's still alive right now. Right. He's in Sudan, where Imam Abdul Rahman, on the next page, 25th, he died in the year 1959. Now, to the right of the man on the 26th page is Saif Fadiq, 
father, which is a man you see me with on the preceding page. We're standing there together pointing. Right, that is the prime minister. That's, that's right, that's right. That's his father up there in the upper right-hand corner. Beneath his father is his father's younger brother, which is my father. Okay. Imam al-Hadi Abdul Rahman al-Mahdi. You follow? Yes, I follow you. Now, what they're saying is that they're saying that we made a mistake and called Imam al-Hadi, my father, and his father, Abdul Rahman, the same person in a magazine many years ago. Okay. Now, but the fact remains that in the magazine that they found back then, yes. there was a mistake. But the mistake was not made by me because at the time I was in Sudan in the university, the American brothers and sisters who were Ansarullah put this leaflet out. They put out like three pamphlets that had nothing to do with it. One of them was a Hajj pamphlet. One of them was a dietary laws of a Muslim pamphlet. And that booklet, which I mentioned all these in this book. Yes, and the people who put it out are still in the mosque. Ansar, who put that out when I was overseas in the University of Khartoum, are still here. And mentioned to the people, no, Imam Isa was not here. I immediately called them from Sudan and said, you made a mistake. You put a picture of my grandfather and my father at two different ages as if they're the same right. person. Right. And they had already circulated, so we said, what's the big deal? So they made a mistake. Right. But for him to imply that I don't know what my own father looks like, Right, that's what, it, that's what he was yeah. saying. Which is also immaterial. It, it, yeah, right, exactly. I was going to say yeah. that. that uh, not that I saw it as being important. Or, yeah, or but when you get to 1980, what? when you get after that, and you see me and the Prime Minister sitting together, the point I was trying to make to Bilal Phillips and Faraj Wahaj is that if I was just another American Negro going to Sudan, mm -hmm. explain what I'm doing sitting in the, with the President. And if I was able to manipulate myself up there, why haven't they produced pictures of themselves sitting with the President? How was I able to manipulate myself into that, live in the house of the Mahdi? I'm living inside of the little man in his house. If I'm not related, what am I doing in there? Why would Sayyid Sadiq come back and forth to the United States to represent us on five different occasions? Why would a prime minister, check this out now, a prime minister of a country leave his country, come to the United States, visit the United Nations building, and then come on Bushwick Avenue to meet a man who's a fake? Why would he, a man who's the president of a country, think about this, leave his country, Visit the United Nations, the delegation has to sign in as a, as a diplomat, and then come over here and stay on Bushwick Avenue in the middle of the ghetto with a bunch of Negroes. Why would he do that? Uh, I, I mean, that would be totally suicide without security, without any, I mean, it would be totally ridiculous. They don't, you know, the Sunni Muslims are so narrow-minded, they just, they're so jealous, the bottom line. There's some of the things they say are so ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? They make some silly mistakes. I mean... You know, you can see over a period of years between 1970 and 1980 something, where me and Sayyid Sadiq al Mahdi had pitches back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Me going over there, him coming over here. Me going over there, him coming over there. He's at my wedding in Sudan, I'm back over here. We know it's, I mean, it's such a ridiculous. You know what bothers them? What bothers them is I'm able to assimilate into America, speak like an American, act like an American. I'm brown. That bothers them. They want me to speak like my relatives with a twisted tongue. You follow? Excellent. They want me to act like uh, a Sudanese when I told them I was raised predominantly in America. I think like an American black man. I'm fortunate that I retain my language and that I retain my identity, my citizenship, but I think like an American black man. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. And they, that bothers the Sunni Muslims, but that's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala planned it. That's why he said, I raised up for you one from amongst your own. Has to be somebody like you. No Arab can't come over here and teach you because he doesn't understand what nigger means. Not really. You understand? Yes, sir. He doesn't understand no, what poverty means. 
He doesn't understand what living in a project means. He doesn't understand what welfare means. He doesn't understand that the black cops will beat you worse than the white cops. And the black meter maid will chase you down quicker than the white meter maid. He doesn't know that. He'll go up to the Negro cop when the white cop and the black cop comes and try to confront them as brother and get beat up. See, they can't deal with that. Allah knows what he's doing. He knows what type of man he raised up in the, in the West here. Get a follow that? Because the man that preceded me, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, knew what he was doing. And though many men tried to emulate him and tried to badmouth him, he knew what he was doing, which was obvious by the nation of Islam that he built. Not by what, not by what men say, not by what Bilal Phillips says, who has no congregation, no responsibilities, no masjid, no schools, no nothing. Not by what Siraj Wahad, who invested in says who can't pay their rent for their masjid. You, you judge a tree by what? By the, by the fruit, fruit it bears. Look at the work of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and you can see that he was a great man. And that he was inspired by somebody or something. You follow what I'm saying? Without question. Without question. And the problem with the black people is the same problem we've always had. You know what it's called? The Joneses. The what? The Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses in a dog-eat-dog world. Black people hate this. The moment we see somebody like Johnny Mathis, and a black woman say, Johnny Mathis is a pretty man. He's a faggot. Uh-huh. This is how we do it. Eddie Murphy's doing fine now. He's very popular. That's all the black men saying now. Eddie Murphy? He's a faggot. Uh, what's her name? Uh, what's that girl? She came out. She was doing good. Dionne uh, Warwick's relatives. Oh, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. She's a dyke. Uh-huh. We, you know, we can't help ourselves. We just refuse to let our own people make it. And the moment, yeah, and the moment, and that, believe me or not, brother, that has been bred into us by the white man by making Mickey Mouse a black mouse, by making Daffy Duck a black duck, and and Elmer Fudd can't talk. But he outwits them every time. And then by having a white man do Amos and Andy's voice. And then by having, you know what I mean? He has undermined our intelligence. This is what Honorable Elijah Muhammad was trying to tell us. He has undermined our intelligence with his trick knowledge. And he has us hating ourselves. So what happens when a Sunni Muslim hears about the Ansar Allah community, they say, these guys got communities all over the world. There's millions of people dressed in white. They got a flag. Their kids speak Arabic. They read their Quran. They build a mosque on the ground up. They open. Now we're putting out our own products, our cleaning products, and toiletries and soap and toothpaste. We're getting into baby oil and baby powder. And we're, we're moving up the ladder of doing for self, like the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says. And some guys over on Bedford Avenue who can't pay his rent, of course he's mad. Because the white man is putting him on television. He's putting down, he puts the laws on television and asks him, what is Islam? None of these guys who graduated from any prominent Islamic university hold no certificate. You know what I'm saying? They pull them out and say, now you know, and all you brothers in there have been following the Amsterdam community for years, know that we have had a drug-free community since the 70s. Ain't no drugs in the Bushwick section. You can move in this section and leave your door open. Because the dope fiends know, walk around Bushwick Avenue, because the Muslims over there don't play. Don't bring that stuff around our kids. We ain't having it. So now, here these guys come up three years ago and chase three drug addicts on Bedford Avenue, and they're on every major magazine and newspaper in the country. Why? Because the white man wants to make a Siraj Wahad known because they know he doesn't know what he's talking about, and in due time, they'll just embarrass him. You follow me? Now what the Arabs do, when they ask the Arabs what they think of Siraj Wahad, they'll say, well, he's a convert. He's an American Negro converted to Islam. You know, they'll, they'll write him down. Does he speak Arabic? Well, he doesn't speak fluently. He reads a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So ultimately, then when you ask the Arab, can you understand the Quran if you can't read Arabic? The Arab will say, no. There's no way you can understand.
understand the Quran if you can't read classical Arabic. Then they'll say, now, does Imam Farad Wahaj speak and read classical Arabic fluently? Then they'll say, no, which means he is leading people and he doesn't understand the Quran. You see the tricks they use? That's the game that these, these, these devil is using. Anything to stop people like Clarence 13X, the leader of the 5% nation, stop Imam Asa, the leader of the Nubian nation, stop Yahweh ben Yahweh, the leader of the black Israelite Hebrew nation, stop any black leadership. Don't let niggas organize. Don't let them come together as a family and build. Don't let them realize who we are, the devil. This is what must be prevented. And because Imam Asa's program seems to be the most powerful. Why? Because I accepted the slander and went into the music world. Why? Because I saw that Marvin Gaye reached more people on one record than every imam in the whole world did giving a sermon on Friday. I saw that LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane, Dougie Fresh, Third Base, uh, Kwame, uh, Shafi, and on and on and on, that these brothers who are rapping, like Public Enemy in them, are rapping messages out to the people. Now, I can sit around and play stupid Sunni Muslims and listen to a bunch of stupid Arabs, you understand, who tell me, don't listen to music, don't dance, don't, don't do things that I do naturally as a child of the motherland. And you know what the motherland is, right? Sudan called Africa by the Greeks, all right? So I'm, I'm supposed to listen to these men and cut off my soul. No, Imam Asa didn't think like that. You know what he did? I went out and I stimulated myself in the hip-hop world and got to know Africa Bambada and got to know Jazzy Jeff and got to know Dougie Fresh and got to know all of these rappers and sat down with them by building a recording studio that he talks about in the book. He doesn't understand the power of building a recording studio. All the rap groups come to record with me. And when they come to record with me, I sit down and find out what they believe. Your father and what they want to do. And I come to find out these young brothers wanted to go out to do something about drugs. Wanted to go out to do something about the condition of their people. I said, well, then go out with the truth. And let me pour this truth on you. And if you can stand against the truth, then call me a fool. Now what happens is, because that, the Ansar Allah community, you go out there and look at like album jackets by the rap group, you see our flag on the back of it. You see Sexy Mom Asa on the back of it. You see me now involving myself with the Zulu Nation. Under African Mbada, they took their Shahada and became Muslim. And these guys don't have nothing else to do. Listen to me. The money they spent on that book, Ansar Cult in America by Bilal Phillips, yeah. they could have spent building their mosque. They could have spent opening a school for their kids. They could have opened a business to support themselves. I heard the Prado I got 10,000 copies of this book sitting in the mosque that we got to sell or give away. They should have took the money that they spent putting that, them 10,000 books, and did something for their community or for the women there so half of them would not be living in shelters or on welfare. You understand what I'm saying? I, I agree. Believe me, Imam Asa was not interested in writing a book about the Sunni Muslims. If I wanted to, yes. I would have done it years ago. I was writing books about how blacks are being taught that Jesus was a white hippie who died on the cross for their sins and keep turning your cheek to the white man because he's slapping us around. That's what I was teaching. I was teaching, like, don't let them tell you that Dr. Martin Luther King ain't no good. Don't let them tell you that Elijah Muhammad ain't no good. Don't let them strip the only black leadership you've got. I'm not saying that everything that every one of these men taught was right and exact. That's not, I'm not a lost upon the I can't make that decision. Don't let them turn you against the Honorable Mayor Dinkins. I watched the Sunni Muslims come out in support of some Pakistanian that was running for office in Brownsville, but didn't come out in support of Dinkins, whose children is named Shabazz 
Taz and Jamal. But the Sunni Muslims didn't come out to this man's aid. They would go out to some Pakistanian out of Queens somewhere who's pretending he's black for a day, but they won't come out for their own. And I can't live with that kind of stuff. Your father, and I'm not going to let them tear the honorable Elijah Muhammad down just because a bunch of books, and let me make this real clear, a bunch of books written by men called Hadith that they say are the stories of the life of the Prophet Muhammad. This is not the Quran. I have never, ever read a Hadith in English or Arabic that started off, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. They don't start off in the name of Allah. They don't start off in the name of Rasulullah, his Prophet Muhammad. They start off in the name of men called friends or companions, Sahaba, or even women like Aisha, who shouldn't have been outside the house in the first place, because the Quran 33, 33 tells a woman's place is in the house. But these men want to live their whole life based on these traditions and lay aside the laws of Allah. I'm only teaching one thing, and that's why I'm hated. And the one thing I'm trying to teach is, first, that we believe, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu. That only, that's the most important thing, Allah alone. Then we will deal with his prophet. First, we got to establish tawheed in our hearts. We got to learn to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and give all gratitude, all praise, all thanks, like we say, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. All of it goes to Allah. In Fatiha, in the first verse that they've taken from the fifth part of the Quran and made the first, nowhere in that chapter do we get mention of the Prophet Muhammad. Nowhere. It's talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Do you understand? That's my goal. My goal is to reinstill belief and loyalty and devotion in Allah wahdahu la sharika lahu. Alone, without partners. Then we'll deal with his prophets. And we'll deal with them in order. And that means from Adam down to Nabi Muhammad, Khatim Enbiya, the seal of the prophets. But we'll start understanding Adam and read. And we won't get a feral story of the prophet Adam in the Quran. It's not fair. We have to go to the Torah. And if you open your Quran in the fifth chapter and the 47th verse, the Sunni Muslims maliciously added the word was, Kana, which is not even in there. When it says, we sent down this Torah to you, it has the word guidance, and they say, was guidance in translation. You follow that? Yes. These are things that frighten me because this shows that the devil is busy and he's trying to make us not understand the beauty and the boundaries and the gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're trying to turn us into men worshippers like they turned the Christians in when Jesus left the world and went to the bosom of Allah. They immediately turned him into a god. When Buddha left the world and went to the bosom of Allah, they turned him into a god. You understand? And those Sunni Muslims are trying to do the same thing now. They're trying to send us to hell. We worship who? Allah. Allah. Allah what? Alone. Who has what? No, no partner. Then if you want to say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, wahdahu la sharika lahu. And then if you want to add Muhammad Rasulullah, fine. Once you establish in your mind first and farmers that you worship Allah and Him alone. Right. You understand that? Yes. That's step one. But see, they lie. And I made a statement. And the statement is that a lot of men calling themselves Muslims are liars. They are devils pretending to be Muslims. You understand? And they're altering things in the, in the laws of Allah 
over a period of time adjusting words. They have us worshiping men instead of Allah, worshiping stones instead of Allah, worshiping tombs, relics, uh, whiskers. They, they have the whiskers of the Prophet Muhammad in Jerusalem. They have the whiskers in a canister, and Muslims go there and make dua. I was in Egypt, and in Egypt they have a masjid and a shrine to one of the Prophet Muhammad's daughters and one of his wives. And they go there behind this door, and I've been in the masjid myself, and they make dua, they kneel down, they lean on this thing, and they say, and they give prayers there. Show me that in the Quran anywhere. Show me where it says we're supposed to do those things. We are supposed to pray to nothing or no one but who? And Allah alone. And if any man, me, or anybody else steps in and tries to direct the focus of our prayer from the one creator of the boundless universe in any other direction, then he's acting the part of the devil. I don't care how many degrees he has or what Islamic universities. I don't care how good his Arabic is. I don't care how he dresses, how much perfume he wears, how much kahol he wears, how much sunnah he recites. If that man or that thing tries to make me and you worship anything or any man other than Allah, then that man or that thing is acting the part of Satan. Do you understand me? My mission... And it's going to be difficult. And I'm going to be hated. But I'm in good company when I'm hated. Because they hated all of the men of law sense. If they like me, I know I'm doing something wrong. You understand? I agree. I'm going to be hated. I'm going to be slandered. I'm going to be reviled. People are going to say all manners of evil against me falsely. I expect all that. I accept all that. But wait a minute. Either they're going to get back on the path, the Surah al or they're going to get out of Islam and stop pretending but they're fabricating a new society that the world is beginning to think we are. And they're judging us by that stupidity that they teach. And I'm not going to teach no stuff like the black stone is, like I said on that tape today, the black stone is black because of no sin. Yeah, you ain't feeding that stuff into my son. Right. You ain't feeding to me that the Prophet Muhammad was white. And if I say he's black, then he's a, I'm a kufr. Why? Because you white? You're not feeding me that stuff. You're not going to feed me that garbage about going to Mecca and kissing a black stone and praying and rubbing shrines and laying up against brick walls. You're not passing that stuff on to me. I worship Allah, and the East and the West belong to Allah. You understand what I'm saying? And that's, I'm in the Western part of the world because it said the light would shine out of the West. Out of the East and under the West, and so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's exactly what I am, the Son of a Man. I'm not the Messiah. I am not the Mahdi. I am the son of a man, a wonderful and a great man. Imam al-Hadi, alayhi salam, a wonderful and a great man, my father. And whether the whole world denies it or not, listen to this. Many Sunni Muslims say, Imam Isa is not a part of the Mahdi family. Do I need the Mahdi family to raise my people? Does it sound like with me talking I have to add that one more headache on my life? Wouldn't I be a greater man if I did this and said, I am not Sudanese, I am not tied to any Arabs? I was born and raised in America. I'm an American Negro now. Listen to me teach. Wouldn't I appear greater to be raised that. up in America, an American, without any Sudanese ties at all? Why would I pull on a burden of a, of a country, my own, that I love, and of all the, the gossip and the slander and the accusations that come with me saying I'm a part of a family if I'm not? Why do I need that? For what? Would that impress y'all? Does it impress y'all that I'm part of Sudanese? Or does it impress y'all what's in these books? What's in the books? And if you took out every reference.
thing out. If you took all of it out, the truth is truth. So I am not saying I'm Sudanese just because I want to pick one of the countries in Africa to identify with. And I don't care if nobody believes my blood. My blood speaks for itself. You follow? So the Sunni Muslims are angry, and they have a right to be angry because I'm coming at them. I'm coming at them. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't be coming at them if they didn't spend time on me. I was busy breaking crosses and taking off the heads of swine. I was trying to bring Christianity to a reality in the minds of black people in America. That's all I was doing, showing them Jesus was not crucified, who his father was, who his mother was, where he came from. He was not, he was not a deity. He's definitely not a lost upon the world. I was bringing that forth. I was not bothering the Sunni Muslims. Here comes some old nappy-haired Negro, born in Jamaica, raised in Canada, don't, and never met me in the flesh in his whole life, never talked about this Bilal Philip, never met me, never talked to me, never visited our community or nothing. And he's going to write a whole book about our community. Start off the book saying I was born in 1935. Start off the book wrong. I mean, when the Arabs told him, don't write the book unless you got the facts, just start off the book wrong. I said, you want to see some facts? I'll write facts. I'll write a book three times as large as your book with a hundred times as many facts if you want facts. And now that I've gotten used to doing this, I enjoy it. So now I'm writing another book. Right. Next book is called 360 Questions to Ask a Sunni Muslim. And they will not be able to answer. People are saying, you're attacking Islam. No, I'm not. I'm attacking the tradition that has bred itself in Islam. And these fake practices that are taking men off the path in this blind faith. If you're going to say you're a Muslim, and you say, Amanta billahi wa 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 If you make these declarations, you're not just saying believe. See, that's why they suck that word in their belief. That's not what Amanah means. Mu'min is not a believer. Mu'minati is not a believer. The word Mu'min and Mu'minati or Mu'minun comes from the word Amanah. We will continue with the true light after a brief intermission. This is the original temple of Kedar, where we have available a vast selection of books, fair beads, fair rubs, black in Arabic, Quran, and the Old and New Testament of the Bible in Arabic. Also, we have multiple pamphlets and leaflets on the truth, posters and portraits, which displays prophets as they really were, Nubians. Now available, a full-color portrait of the Last Supper, the real Last Supper, portraying the Messiah Jesus and his disciples as they really appeared, as black men, Nubians. The original tent of Kedar is located at 717 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. Or call us at 718-452-9329. We will now continue with the true light. Alif, Mim, Noon. To be faithful. To have faith. And they'll tell them to Iman together. You have to have your Iman together. Your faith. Your faith. Then they put a, a meme on that same word, faith, and call it Mu'min, and then change it to believer. I don't believe in nothing. It comes from Allah. I have faith in it. I believe in you. I believe my boss is going to give me my check this week if I work. I believe my car is going to cross the Jersey Turnpike on my way to Philadelphia. But I'm not going to put my faith in it. I'm going to have the engine checked and make sure the gas tank is full. Then I can put a little faith in it. When it comes to a loss of Panawata Allah, I have 
Yahuwah as he is. I don't need no, no, no nothing decorating him up. I don't need no colors put around him. I don't need no robes put on him. I don't need no rocks, no buildings, or no flesh. I believe in him, Shamahua, as he is, and his unique qualities across the Father. I'm content with that. And that's what I'm here to teach you. That now that Islam is in the West, it's going to be at its best. It's going to be pristine purity. And if they can't deal with it, get out the ring. Go ahead. Well, Wait, let me comment on this sex life yes. for Muslim books. Say again? The sex life for Muslim books that I've written. Oh, uh, That's one of their comments. It's not for you. I understand oh, where you're okay. coming from. I can feel right. it. Believe me, I feel it. I'm talking to people who they question about the sex life of Muslim. They say Imam Isa wrote a book called The Sex Life of a Muslim, and it is disgusting. I just want to ask them how they get their kids. They still teach their kids that a stalk flies. You can't do that. The kid might get lost. Stalks fly over houses. How do the Sunni Muslims make babies? Do they have sex? Understand what I'm saying? Why are they trying to take one of the most prominent things in everybody's life and pretend that it does not exist? And then have children raising them and not telling them about it. The whole Muslim world needs to write books on what Islam says about sex. If you disagree with what I say, then write your own book and prove it wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Write a book about sex and say, this is wrong because, look, this is wrong because, look, this is wrong because, look. But don't pick up the book and say, this is wrong because it's disgusting. Why? Because I'm explicit. The book says, for adults only on it. Now, if you give it to your kids, that's your fault. If you see your kid with it and don't take it out of his hand, that's your fault. If you, if you saw your kid with the wrong kind of comic book, you take it out of his hand. This is because I've met too many Muslims in my years. Because when you become an imam of a community, people come to you with their problems. You understand? Most brothers who are not leaders don't know that. And so you think, God, I've been hearing it for 20 years, all these different rumors and things. I'm going to write a book as explicit as I possibly can about sex for a Muslim. What he can and what he cannot do. Here's where their problem comes in. They want me to put in the book things that Hadith says and say that Allah says it. And I'm saying, I am not going to do that. Then don't ask me to write in the book because some guy from Pakistan or Russia or Saudi wrote it in a collection of Hadith and you worship it. I don't believe that. That is up to you to make the decision. The things that Allah does not mention specifically or explicitly in the Quran, I am not taking it upon myself to add to that. He didn't say you can't, so I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying, like he says, go into your wives any, by any way you wish, because she is a fertile ground for you, was what the Quran says. Allah didn't even drop to the level of dwelling on subjects like that. Those are animalistic attributes. Allah didn't address those filthy, low subjects, as they call them. What do you, what do you, what do you people think Allah is? He's not dwelling on your sex life. Those words are telling you right there that he does not indulge in any form of sex and he is not the product of any form of sex. Because the root word in there is wallet. You understand? He did not father any child, nor was he fathered by anybody. He doesn't deal in those subjects. He speaks to you in general. I gave your wife as a help me to you. Your wife is fertile for you to produce. He doesn't get into the intricacy about your sex life, what you do and what you don't do. That's our animal nature. You understand what I'm saying? That's the human being in us that makes us dwell on how much pleasure we need to have. 
and how often we need to have that pleasure. And for them to involve Allah in it is 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 blasphemous. It's, it's ridiculous. There's a book about sex because Muslims, like everybody else, have to know about sex. What's clean, what's unclean, about artifacts that are being used, how dangerous these things can be. About diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea and now AIDS and who knows what they'll have next year. They have to know this. And if no Muslim don't write about this, and I've been around a lot of them Pakistanis, I'm going to tell you, they're so soft, you can coach them in marshmallow and sell them. They ain't got no masculine bones in their body at all. Because they've been raised That's in an all-male society. They wasn't allowed to have girlfriends. I'm not saying you can go have a girlfriend. But don't make girls think it's wrong for seeing men as cute. And don't make little boys think it's wrong for seeing little girls as, as pretty. If your little boy sees a little girl neighborhood, he's a Muslim, he says, Daddy, I think she's pretty. Yeah, she's pretty. Then you explain to him why he doesn't pursue her, why he doesn't try to take her virginity, etc., etc., etc. But you don't just say that's wrong, you don't look at girls, that's a sin, they're going to hell. And then you're wondering why his son is sore. Comes home, he's getting beat up every day. You got to raise your, your son hard, make him a man. You understand what I'm saying? If you don't, he's going to be soft. And you're going to feel bad when your son is getting beat up. But you're going to want to beat him up for getting beat up. We're trying to raise a nation, the Nubian nation. I'm talking to the women in there. Y'all want men or y'all want woe men? What do y'all want? Tell the men what you want. Muhammad didn't tap dance into Mecca. He fought his way back to Mecca. Right. Jesus was turning tables over. He wasn't no punk. Abraham came to get locked by force. He fought a battle. He wasn't no pushover. And I'm not saying that we have to be revolutionists, and especially not against each other, but we have to be prepared against anybody who comes against us to defend our family and our women. Is that right or that wrong? That's correct. And if they call me crazy for that, then let me wobble in my insanity. Go ahead. Well, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say behind that, but... Well, no, actually, uh, uh, of course, you know, issues like sex and things like that have to be addressed. And uh, I, I didn't uh, read the book, uh, Sex Life of a Muslim. Anyway, in uh, Bilal's book, okay, uh, when, he, uh, when he spoke on the issue of uh, sex, I noticed in the rebuttal you didn't address it. Uh, of course, I knew that I had a book on the press called Sex Life of a Muslim. Say that? I knew I had a book that was in the press at the same time called Sex Life of a Muslim that I had just finished. So the reason why I didn't have to address that subject in this book is I had just finished the whole book that was getting ready to come out within a couple of days called The Sex Life of Muslims. It addresses each one of the Sunni Muslim subjects that's in Bilal's book already. The reason why I didn't deal with the pictures extensively in this book is because I knew I had another book coming out right after called All Pictures of Sin. You follow me, John And yeah. it made me able to go right there because when I had finished writing the stuff that I got on the Sunni Muslim, I could put it in the back of a truck. I had so much stuff. This thing was almost 4,000 pages. I had to throw away stuff and say, I can't use all this stuff here. I had to so much research on Sarah or Hodge and them, I felt like their parents. Well, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to use this stuff. I didn't even fear to do this to these kids. You know what it is, though? When you grab them for straws, and when they came yeah. down after 20 years of trying to really get down to slandering on me after all the years, and all the slander I've been tolerating them for a long time, when they really got down to trying to write a book, they didn't come up with anything. Yeah, I agree. They yeah. really couldn't go, and they came up with it. And when you read the book, it's like, come on, look at these people you went to. You know, people have been out the mosque yeah. 15 years ago. Some guy had a daddy to tell him, this nigga was me to death and they believed it. How can you believe that me and a guy took a truckload of us of coins to a bank on, on Utica Avenue? How can somebody, that's how you know the guy who wrote the book don't have no bank account, first of all. And though he's still living in the project. First of all, they won't even count that stuff. 
They'll say, y'all ain't counting this. Plus, how did me and this guy carry half a million dollars worth of coins? So how come the government don't know? It's little things like that that people should have just said, this guy here is not writing a book to reveal anything. They just, they just, just trying to stop yeah. the answer our community. Yeah. Let me ask y'all people, can they stop us? No. <laughs> what no. is wrong with them? Okay, all we're doing is getting greater and stronger in the name of Allah. Ain't no stopping us. They also, the scripture tells you cannot be responsible for what you don't know. However, the Bible says, what did Jesus say? All eyes shall behold his glory. You got a chance because the Messiah, Jesus, is coming. The stupid Sunni Muslims don't have enough sense to teach this. They don't realize they're not teaching that the Messiah is coming. They keep leaving out one very important element, and that element is salvation. Sunni Muslims do a lot of preaching and a lot of doctrine, but they don't never tell nobody what about salvation. What about the saving of our souls for the sins we've committed? And that is done through the Messiah, Jesus. He is your salvation. And that's why Islam even says Jesus was exalted in this world and the hereafter. That's why Islam teaches that the Messiah, Jesus, will come back at the end of the world. Because he is the Savior. He is the source of salvation. And them fools won't teach that. Salvation is to come, not here. And Muhammad told us, in the Nasrullah, Kareem, surely the help from Allah is coming in the second chapter, 214 verse. In the Nasrullah Kareeban, when his disciples or his followers turned to him and said, Muhammad, when will the aid come? He said, surely the aid is Kareeban, near. They say nigh, because they don't want us to understand what it means. They know black people don't use words like nigh. It says, then, Ida'ja Nasrullah, he went back. Nasrullah, Nasrullah, Ida'ja Nasrullah, and Sarullah. What do they call Jesus' followers in the Quran? Nasri, Nasri, Nasrullah. You people are the true followers of the Messiah. You would be real Christians. Not Christian by the Christian Greek word Christos or the Latin word Christos or the Greek word. No, but by the word Nasrullah or Ansarullah. And when Allah says, when you see the Nasrullah come, that'll be the victorious opening of the seven seals. Muslims, Sunni Muslims are absent of salvation. Ask them, what is their salvation? They have no answer. They read hadith, they read books, they pray, they go to Mecca, they fast, but they don't speak about salvation. Though Rasulullah Muhammad did say that Jesus was coming at the end of the world in all their hadith, but they won't talk about it. And that is the salvation. That's your only hope. Without hope, <laughs> you can forget it. You ones in this room here who say you must, you better start acknowledging and start looking for and praying for the return of the Messiah and get away from this rigid orthodox Sunni Islam that has nothing to do with salvation. There's nothing in that. All it says is pray five times a day, go to Mecca, talk to them, say, where's the salvation? Salvation is in the Messiah, Jesus' return, to claim the righteous, who we call Ansarullah, or Nasrullah, or the Nasr. Idaja Nasrullah, he was talking. He tells you right in that chapter of the Quran, and that's supposed to be the last full chapter revealed to Muhammad. It was after all those other things the Sunnis used. It was the last one, Nasr. And that's when he said, when you see the aiders of Allah or the Nasr, Allah, the Nasri coming, they tell you this is a victorious opening. When you see them, and they said there'll be Yadakhaluna Fiddin Allah, not Yadakhaluna Fiddin Islam. It doesn't say that. It says Yadakhaluna Fiddin Allah. Sunni Muslims keep saying this is Deen al-Islam. Deen al-Islam, they right. You all are in Deen al-Islam. You all are 1,400 years old. Muhammad says, Yadakhaluna fi Deen Allahi. Then if they tell you that Jesus was before Muhammad and Muhammad founded Islam, then it would be Yadakhaluna fi Deen al-Islam. Not Yadakhaluna fi Deen Allah. Muhammad brought in 
دین الاسلام شریعہ The laws of Islam, the correct thing. But Isa was in Deen Allah. He was called Ruhu Allah, the soul of Allah. What was Muhammad called in the Quran? Rasul Allah, one sent from Allah. Jesus was called Ruhu Allah, the soul of Allah, not one sent from him, a portion of his very essence in present. Right there, Kalim Allah, the word of Allah. Ruhu Qudus, a Holy Spirit, Allah does. We strengthen Jesus with the Ruhu Qudus, with the Holy Spirit. But now you then got so far away from that, you think Islam is a new religion that does not acknowledge the Messiah's return. And you think, well, if I say I believe in the Messiah's return, I'm a Christian. And that's all the devil's work, Sunni Islam, trying to mess you up. Abraham, Jesus said, before Abraham I am. Before Abraham he existed. What was he talking about? He was talking about what Allah called him, Ruhu Allah. His soul existed before Abraham. He was a part of the Elohim, which is translated in Arabic as Allahumma, a part of the original we in creation. And he is your salvation. You better get back on the right path, because I don't know where someone misled you people, but Jesus is your salvation. Ask the Sunni Muslim, where's the salvation in Islam? They ain't got none. <laughs> That's still 1,400 years ago, talking about Deen al-Islam. It's Mila Ibrahim, Deen Allahi. When you see people entering into the deen of Allah, it says. Not when you see people entering into the deen of Islam. What's the difference between deen of Allah and deen of Islam? Deen of Islam is prompted by hadith and traditions and customs of men. And deen of Allah is prompted by his holy scriptures. Because Allah speaks, not men interpreters. I know my religion was deen of Islam in the time of Muhammad. But Muhammad said, Yadakhuluna fi deen Allah. And I said, if you open your Quran in the second chapter, 214 verse, it tells you, don't think you're going to get away with anything that the children of Israel didn't get away with. Don't think you're not going to suffer what the children of Israel suffered. You're going to get it all. Then at the end of that statement, they said, well, Muhammad, when is Jesus coming? When is the Nasrullah? When are the Ansars coming? And he said, in the Nasrullah Kareeban. Surely, in the Nasrullah, the Nasri, the Nasrullah. See that? He asked our pale Arab who the Sunnis worship. What's a Christian in the Quran? They say, Nasri. He's a Nasri. Is that related to Nasrullah? No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> they say, isn't that the same word? That's like saying, isn't, uh, what do they call it, skin milk and homogenized milk milk? No, 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 no. One is skin milk uh, and one is homogenized. Okay, but are they both milk? No, 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 no. This is sheer stupidity. And they're trying not to have you receive the gift of heaven. They're trying not to have you receive the gift of the glory of salvation through the Messiah, Jesus. Now you may say, wow, Imam sounds like a Christian. Well, for all intents and purposes, I am. I'm not a Christian by Christianity as your interpretation of some white guy nailed on a cross for you. But I am in the sense that I believe that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come to save you and that we are bringing him in. We are his herald. We are bringing you up to the par where you are prepared to receive him and receive the grace and the forgiveness that only comes through him. Muhammad never claimed to have the power to forgive anybody. He didn't. He merely said, I came with this Quran because it will clear up all the confusion and all the conjectures that people made up about Jesus and all the other prophets. I made a statement a while back. I want you all to relate to this. If I make a cake and I don't put flavor in the cake, you with me? I don't put any flavor in this cake at all. Now, the cake is just plain cake. And a white man called it. What kind of cake you want? I want a plain cake. 
That means it ain't got no flavor, just plain. Now, if I add chocolate in the cake, then it becomes what? Chocolate cake. If I add marble, and I want to make it chocolate and strawberry, if I put some chocolate and some strawberry, we call it marble cake, because we're confused now. Now, whatever I want you to taste in the cake the most, I put the most of it in the cake. Are you with me? Okay, now. So now, if Jesus is mentioned in the Quran more than any other prophet, and he is, then Allah flavored the Quran more with the Jesus flavor than any other prophet. Huh? Are you with me? So what does he want you to taste when you read the Quran? Jesus or Moses? If he put more stories about Jesus, more names about Jesus, more about the purity of his birth and the miraculous things he did while he was on earth and the powers he was given while he was on earth, the Quran is saturated with more information about Jesus than any other prophet. Mind you now, if Allah is making a cake and he puts more chocolate, he wants you to call it cake, what kind of cake? That's right. Nowhere in the Quran does Muhammad say the Quran is his. Nowhere he says this is my Quran. Nowhere. Muhammad was a prophet sent from Allah bringing us the Quran that it could clear up all the confusion in the books before and prepare you for that chocolate cake. And the chocolate in the cake of life is Jesus. The prophet most mentioned in the Quran is Jesus. Allah wanted you to recognize Jesus out of all the other prophets in the Quran. Now, if you got a better argument, let me hear it. Yavala, but them Sunni Muslims have no salvation. They don't even know what they're doing. They just pray, fast, and sit around and read traditions of men called Hadith. They better hurry up and wake up and realize that the world is quickly coming to an end and they have no proclamation for salvation. You can't ask them how they're going to be saved. They don't know. Think about it. Talk to Sunni. Say, well, where's your salvation at? Well, if I'm good, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, if you're good. But what about all the sins you already committed? Because I got like a brother named Siraj Wahaj from Montauk-Taqwa who stands up and tries to sell this book to Ansar Cult. He goes out his way to push this book on us. And, and right? So all them brothers and sisters sitting over there in Taqwa better get up off the floor and get over here where we say we have to get salvation through the Messiah so that you can be forgiven for making those mistakes. See, they're not asking for salvation for their previous sins. They think after they took their shahada, they're over. How many of y'all took your shahada and then the next couple of days committed another sin? Y'all are two. You know you, you know you did. Ain't no sense of sitting there pretending. And if you did that, all the other sins are back. And all the ones you had before, that you got rid of with your shahada, the moment you committed another sin after that, you got all those sins back. Now you got to start doing deeds. Now it's about matching them with good deeds. All the stuff you said, man, I took my shahada, I mean, all the stuff I just snatched pocket, beat up old women and did this and did that. Boy, it's all over. And then you went out and did something wrong and it's all back. I'm back to the beginning. That's right. He gave you a chance. But then he says, Jesus is what? He shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people. It says the law came to Moses, but grace, which is a form of ni'mah, which is forgiveness, came to Jesus. Them Sunni Muslims don't realize, especially if there was once an Elijah Muhammad follower, a five percenter, or a Buddhist, or worship any kind of statue, or idol, or saint, they better hurry up and look for some salvation. Because without their salvation, they're not going to heaven. And anybody sitting in that mob listening to them is going to hell. Because the leader ain't got salvation. How are you going to take you? He's sitting there without instructions. He's going to drive you somewhere? I know how to get there. Let me see the map. I don't need a map. Well, let me see the protocol. Well, sit there and tell me before I pull off. I ain't got to tell you. Trust me. Trust you? I trust nobody but who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
I ain't trusting no man. I trust Allah. Don't trust me. Trust Allah and Allah alone. Any man that tells you to trust him, you better really not trust him. You ain't got nobody but you and Allah. That's why when you make Salah, you're making it really to you with you and Allah. That's why you should you whispering and you're talking out loud. Part of it for the congregation to know you're there, and the other part between you and Allah. And the most important part, you're saying by yourself, Allah only listens to him. See who's grateful to him. Our sustainer are worthy of all grace, all praise, all gratitude. Those are the words you whisper. Those are the things you whisper. That's between you and him. Nobody else. Somebody binding partners with Allah, they're going to hell. And they don't have some form of salvation. If you're a Sunni Muslim, you think your salvation was 1,400 years ago. And here you didn't commit a sin after the 1,400 years ago. You didn't commit a sin in 1967. Here you talking about you're going to be saved because of Muhammad did 1,400 years ago. You better clean up your act. And start looking for the Messiah like the Prophet Muhammad predicted that will come and remove the sins from the world and hopefully remove them sins out of your heart for when you were binding partners with Allah. Do you understand what I'm saying? If that sounds like Christianity, then I'm a Christian. You think I'm going to sit around and be with you all, and you don't have no direction, you out your mind. I'm not getting no car and let you drive me somewhere and you don't know where you're going. Now, if that upsets you, I'm sorry I'm upsetting you, but the truth is truth. Want me to, want me to water it down so I can feed your ego? Because that's what black people do. You know, they like that, you know. They like you to water things down so you can feed your ego. Don't talk like that, brother. Don't say that this way. Don't do that, brother. It says the scripture comes with a sword, a two-edged tongue, just cutting up lies. My job is to come here and cut up lies. I didn't come here to win no popularity contest. I didn't come here to be liked. That's not my job. My job is wherever I see a lie to correct it with the truth, regardless of who it hurts. What does the Prophet Muhammad say about that? Bitter to others. What I might be saying may sound like a bitter pill, but it's the truth, and you know it is. You know what I'm saying is true. It might not, you might not like it. You might not like me, but I'm not going to dance with you anyway, so you ain't got to like me. I'm not here for that. My job is to clear up the lie. And I've been doing it for 20 years, and nobody's been able to stop us. When you read our doctrine, who can stand against you? You're the only group of people looking for people to ask you questions. Everybody else is trying to avoid questions. The only people out here can answer questions are you. Because you got a book here. Well, I'll find, wait a minute, I'll be right back. I'm going to find in this book here. Page, so just say, just be patient. Page, so, so, let me see. There it is. Or you say, I'll be back some point on Sunday and act that crazy, man. When I come back Monday, I have this answer if you got patience. We're the only ones that can do that. Why? Because Allah has showered his blessings on us. But don't think every time I talk to you, I'm going to massage your ego and make you feel good. Because that's not my job. Sometimes i got to tell you the truth, and it might sound harsh, but it's true. I don't like everything I say either, especially speaking, but i got to live with it because it's true. And it hits me the way it hits you. Truth is truth regardless of what I like. Sometimes I say things, I feel like saying, shut up. But I didn't commit myself to something. My mouth won't even let me not say it. I try to control my mouth, and the answer come out anyway. But that's where a lot of plans things. You understand? That's what reformation means. People will have to contend with the truth. And we have to reform it, bring it back to its pristine purity. We follow Mila Ibrahim. We follow Abraham's religion. If you have any. Islam is supposed to be a religion that teaches us how to live in a community. There are a few um, beliefs that I do not quite understand. I would like for you to please talk to me about polygamy, how it came about, and um, what its reasons are. I do not dispute the fact that it is problematic.
be lawful for a man to have more than one woman. But the um, the rules that come with that, which say that you have to divide yourself equally between each woman, would automatically um, exclude, is that a word? Most of the men. There's no such thing as a man cannot handle it because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has enjoined it in the, in the Quran and it's found in the Torah and it's found throughout the city of the Sahur. So if Allah has said that men can have for a while, then man is capable. You have to look at it from another light now. It's not that man is not capable, it's that the devil has stepped in and has changed man from what he was to what he is today. Now black man is living in the image of the white man. I don't care whether he puts on a jellyby and a tarbiya and imma or African clothes or anything and black green flags. These black men are still thinking. They're not thinking tribe. They're not thinking family. They're not thinking nation. They're thinking individual me, myself, and I. They've been groomed by the white man to think that way. And even when they call themselves black, they form organizations to become me, myself, and I. When you look at the basic Syrian population or the so-called Sunni Muslims, you're looking at Black people who are emulating white Arab concepts of Islam. They don't have no, they don't really identify with Mother Africa as a cult at all. When you go over to Senegal, you're looking at black men who have been influenced by the French. When you go into Libya, you're looking at blacks who have been influenced by the Italians. When you go into Egypt, you're looking at blacks who have been influenced by the Greeks and the Turks. As you travel throughout our motherland, you're not looking at black people who are black-minded in the same time. You're looking at black people even in Mother Africa who have been influenced by the white man. And a black man there thinking through a white man's mind. The point I'm trying to make is that if the heavenly father, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has said that a man can have for a while, then it is an African man to have the capability to deal justly or Allah would not have said it. Allah don't just seek to be seeking. It's the condition that the white man has put us in and the state of mind he has put our women in by her demand level. By that I mean, he has got the black woman demanding things the white woman demands. She no longer looks at the black man the way she would have in the times of Abraham with loyalty and devotion and respect and regard. She's been groomed to question her man. The white woman has always questioned her man, but the black woman never questioned her man. And as long as she wasn't questioning us, we were ruling the world. The moment our women begin to question us, and this can go all the way back to Eve, going towards the apple without Adam, and then taking it and giving it to Adam. We've been having that problem ever since. That period of 6,000 years ago was when the white man first came into existence. We had just gone to Earth centuries before that, living in empire from Atlantis to move to Lemuria to Salam, all over this planet, without the influence of the white man, and our, and our black woman was obedient and accepted polygamy without a problem. It's the white man's indoctrination into the black woman being in Sudan, Somali, Ethiopia, Egypt, uh, Senegal, wherever it's Kenya, wherever y'all are, he has gotten his woman's ideas in your mind, and y'all are starting to deal with your man the way his woman deals with him. You follow that? And genetically, we were not bred to handle the kind of questions that you put before us. Most of our marriages end in divorce or wife badgering. Because black women are trying to deal with a black man the way white women deal with the white man. And we only have four generations back where we were living under control of our tribe. We lived in tribal environments with the chief. That's four generations ago. Here we are now living in a country with a president and a whole bunch of women 
I wouldn't call a woman indoctrinating from Elizabeth Taylor to Marilyn Monroe, even though black women in that room who say that they don't idolize Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor, the first thing they do when they get a chance is go ask some dead people here in their hair, and they got to be shoulder length, and they start painting their faces up and putting on powder to make their skin look lighter. That's product of a Marilyn Monroe and uh, Elizabeth Taylor syndrome, which takes them out of being African or them being original women and makes them think like white women and they confront the black man in America with that. Now we're going to a confused state because we're finding our way back home. Let me clear something else. Forget the word African. Because the word Africa is a bad word. It's an insult. We're not African. We're Nubians. To be called an African is to be called something divided. It's Christian. Something in Arabic that means to be from the word Farata, to be divided and broken up into pieces. We're not African anything. We are Nubians from the word Neba, the news bearer. The same word prophet comes from the word Nabala, Neba. Those people responsible for all the information on the planet Earth. That's who we are. And we have gotten away from that, but now we're reading the books of people who are like babies to us, whose civilizations, as they call them, and whose schools of learning came thousands of years after us, but they have set up the curriculum and the criteria by which decisions are made, who accomplishes this and who fails in this, to walk a path through their little schools of learning, which is only hundreds of years old, to follow that, to be brainwashed into thinking we're black. That's the problem. So polygamy is not a problem in the eyes of Allah because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put it in the Quran. And he put it in the Quran and Abraham did it in the Torah and Joseph did it in the Indian. So it was in all of the scriptures of Allah, man does have the qualification to live in a polygamous system properly and justly. It's just that all of us, male and female, are reading the white man's book and picking up his bad habits and it's killing our society. Okay? All right, proceed. Thank you. You have answered that question very well. How do you feel about homosexuality? I feel that homosexuality in the white world is a product of something they created from Greece. It was a first start off as penis envy. The white man is suffering from a serious case of penis envy. He thought by telling white women that the African man was twice as large as he was, that this was through pain, frightened her from the black man, and it worked to the contrary. He started chasing after the black man. Um, in this instance, I'm quoting from a doctor, Francis Weldon, a female doctor who specializes in melanin and uh, genetic warfare. And she says that white man started pursuing homosexual acts because of his inability to perform for his own woman. So they started performing with each other. That's the present day definition of it. The old definition of it goes back to the definition of Greece. When, when men had galactical schools of learning and physical schools of training, and they spent on a day of 23 hours, at least 20 of those hours among all men. So the stronger men dominated and the weaker men fell to the wayside, like it takes place today in their new system of national galactic law, which is called prison. The strong men in the prison dominate and the weak men become kids or homosexuals. This is a part of the white man's nature because his genes are corrupt. It is not a natural thing for a black man to become a homosexual. But what it is, it's a natural thing for a black man to be a follower. That's the sad thing. So we developed a habit of emulating other people. Now, blacks are starting to emulate what they see on television. And one of those things is homosexuality. Um, I would like to know a little bit about hatred. I didn't feel I hate those people. I just feel their ways put me in an awkward situation. Um, I was told not to hate anybody, yet I don't love them. 
And whenever I um, express my views about them, I'm called a homophobic. How does this religion feel about them? And what is in store for them? I'd like to know. I don't hate a gun. And I don't hate a bullet. And I don't hate gunpowder. But the moment I'm shot with a gun and the bullet is in my body and I feel the pain, I hate the pain that the bullet causes. I hate the fact that the combustion of the gunpowder in the bullet gave it the ability to be launched into my body and cause this pain or death. And then I hate the gun that had the hammer that triggered the bullet that sparked the gunpowder that sent that lead into my body. And then I hate the hand that held the gun that pulled the trigger. You follow what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Now, I don't want to hate anybody, but I am not a masochist. And when I look at South Africa, I look at Ethiopia, I look right here in the south in this country, I look at Somalia and Sudan, and even in your home country, Senegal, and I see what the white man does, how he constantly pulls the trigger on us and inflicts mental as well as physical pains on us in his pursuit of keeping world dominancy in the hands of the Caucasian. I cannot help but to hate what he is doing to me. You follow? South Africa is really the richest part of the whole planet Earth, correct? By the minerals and the natural resources that are found there. Yes? Yet the black people there are the poorest on the planet. Why is that so? Because some white people decided to go in there and take over. Why did they do this? And why don't America help? And why don't Britain help? And why doesn't Australia help? And why doesn't France help? And why don't the red and white Arabs of Saudi Arabia help? Quite simple, sister. Because if they give South Africa back to the South Africans, and we start to control the mines that are there, the diamond mines, and the oil mines, and the platinum, and all the different other natural minerals there, we will swiftly become the richest people on the planet Earth. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Now, nature has placed these things there. And in our religion, we understand nature as the father, or the mother, which is the last upon the earth. The creator placed these natural minerals there. So the Creator really intended for me and you to be the richest people on the planet Earth because He put the source of all wealth under our feet in Africa. There's no mineral or natural resources anywhere on the planet that yields any wealth that cannot be found in our homeland. Like all the oil in Saudi Arabia, America could be buying a large quantity of that from Nigeria, but they just don't want to. We know that's a fact. They just don't want to buy from Nigeria. But they have no intention of ever letting people of color rule in their natural place. Now, it's a God-given right because God put the natural resources under my and your feet. So he intended for us to rule. But he also made us in his image and after his likeness. And that part of us is our worst enemy. It's our compassion. You don't want to hate because you're just a nice person. You understand that? That's the God in you that says, I don't hate white people. You're just a compassionate, nice person being in the image of the Creator. What is sad is that white people don't feel the same way. They're still shooting our babies in the streets, not just in America. They're killing us all over the world. They take and go to Kenya, and they do all kinds of diseases and laboratory experiments on us, like we're guinea pigs. They lay Ethiopia to waste, and as the people migrate and die about a billion, they truckload a thousand of them to Israel and say, look at what we're doing for you. The white man is petrified by destiny. 
Destiny has it written that we will re-inherit the planet Earth. Once we unite, it'll be back in our hands. Do I hate the white man? Let me say this. I hate the hand that pulls the trigger, that hits the hammer against the bullet, that ignites the powder, that sends the lead into the hearts of my people and won't let us stand up and be counted for what we are, but rather controls the media and stimulates the minds of the world that we are worthless, shiftless, good-for-nothing people because they won't give us a fair shot at world market. If they give us a fair shot at world market, then we will go into South Africa, the black man who has been groomed in the Western world, who knows about commerce and business, we will go into South Africa and we will turn that gold into the richest country in the world and take Africa out of the condition it's in. But we know for a fact that there's not one part of the planet Earth, not one part of the planet Earth that cannot fit inside Africa five or six times. And the moment we take down the word Africa, Faraka, Ephesia, Division, and eliminate Senegalese and Sudanese and Maghribians or Mithraeans, Egyptians or Somalians or Nigerians or Ghanaians or this and giving all those walls like the devil is doing in Europe right now amongst his people. The moment we tear down all those walls and we use Nigeria for all the natural oil resources it has and we develop it together and we use South Africa for all the natural resources it has and we develop it together and we use the ambassadors, the people in this country who can speak, who got the education of the devil here to be our representatives in the world market and set up with one flag, with one declaration, with one religion under, the, under one God. You understand that? The white man will fall. He knows this. You follow that? And he will do everything in his power to keep you paying tax out your checks. You know what I'm saying? Going to his doctor for medicine, putting your money in his bank. He'll do anything to keep you like that. If the way I feel about getting my people out of this condition means kicking a white person in the head, sister, I will kick them again and again and again. Because we just cannot go on like this. That cop in, in, in Kedak, New Jersey, who shot that black boy in the back, he got suspended from his job with pay. When Tawana Brawley said she was raped, she had to prove she was raped. Understand what I'm trying to say, sisters? So if that is hate, the way I feel about that boy, because he could have been my son at my age, if that is hate, the way I feel about the way the society is dealing with our people, then, yes, I hate it. So do I. Uh, um, uh, this is concerning uh, the birth of, of Esau and Jacob, right? Um, it's in Genesis chapter 25, verse 25. The reason I'm asking this question is because it's dealing with the, um, the brothers, uh, the Hebrew Israelites. So I start 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like in hairy garments. And they called his name Esau. Now, <laughs> they were trying to say that this meant that he was white. The word Esau is Hebrew, Yitzchah. Yitzchah means to be hairy. It has nothing to do with the color of the hair. It means to be hairy like certain babies are born, like on a scale of uh, 10, let's say eight babies are born without hair. Or years ago, now, but nowadays, it's different. Nowadays, you know, a lot of black babies are born with full Heads of hair. Mm -hmm. Back then, 
Yitzchak was named Yitzchak because he was a twin. And of the two twins, he came out reddish, with reddish skin tone, like certain black babies who, who turn to be, who come out to be caramel color when they grow up. When they were babies, if you look at a newborn baby, you see they were reddish. Yeah. All right? Whereas Jacob was very black. His brother came out lighter than him, a light skin, red colored skin. That's where the word Edom comes from in Hebrew. Edom. Reddish. Not red. Reddish. Or blush. You follow that? Okay, I follow but that. But the name Esau itself in Hebrew is Yitzchak, and it means to be hairy. So he was born as a twin with a full head of hair. If you do any research on twins, you find out usually when twins are born, one has a full head of hair and one is usually bald hair. There's always one child is deficient because the other child has usually no genetic more, you know, more out of the fetus of the mother to the, the wound of the mother than the other. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, I follow. So his, his, what they're trying to say is an old thing that Esau is white and Jacob is black and that the Israelites and descendants of Israel were the black ones and that Esau was red and thus became white. If you read the Bible and study the any Bible dictionary and just take the name Esau okay. and start reading all the places where you find Esau, you'll find the reason why they say that is because when Esau got mad, because of the deception that his mother played against Isaac, her name was Rebecca or Ripka, when she deceived Isaac and gave uh, Esau's birthright to Jacob, Esau, in his anger, went out and started marrying Hittite women. He went and violated the law that Abraham and them had enjoined on the family that you should not take a wife from amongst the daughters of Canaan with whom we dwell. So they live in America amongst the white people, Abraham said, they may be tempting to you, but don't marry them. It was passed down from Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, and then down from Isaac to Jacob and them. So when Esau got mad because of what his mother did, to get even, he went out and married a Hittite, of the, which was of the 11 sons of Canaan, and started producing the red race, which is known as Edom, and inherited also a mongoloid trait. You follow that? Mm -hmm. Which later interpreted itself as mongoloidism. That's why when you see children who have Down syndrome, you're looking at children who look like they are Orientals. Same eyes, structure without lids, and etc. Regardless of what race they belong to, they still have the Oriental or the Mongolian or Mongoloidian. You see the words? Yeah. Two of the exact same words. The word Mongolian and the word Mongoloid is the exact same word. Esau inherited the curse. If you read in the books of um, Malachi, you'll find that Allah says that he hated Esau for what he did. Because he brought the devil's seed back into the blood of Israel. What, what verse in chapter 1? Malachi 1? 1 for us. Okay. The problem? Uh-huh. Hey, Allah says, I hated him for doing this. Because he's been telling us for centuries, don't mix our seed with them. Now today... Look at the media again and see that the woman that's being portrayed at, as attractive on all the videos, on all the movie shows, are light-skinned women who are not Latino and who are not black, which they here. They are neither black, nor are they white, nor are they Latino. They're a new breed of mulattoes that the white man is pushing as the beauty symbol throughout the world today. This is a result of us mixing our seeds with them. These people are passing themselves off as black, but wishing to be white. 
or as the brother put it in the movie, wanna be. They want to be white. So exactly what are they then? They're black. Anybody who is non-white is black. Okay. Yeah, it's not difficult to find out how to get back to white person. A lot of people in the world who think they're white, like the Sicilians of Italy, are black. Mm. You follow that? Mm -hmm. All non-whites are black. And to say I am white, which is there's no such race, is to say you're corporate, is not to identify a genetic trait, but a, a, ge a geographical location, which is a conscious mountain which is between the Caspian and the Black Sea, and it can be found on any map today, which is bordered by the word Turk, which means behind the rock. And that's where the tribe of Canaan was. To say Caucasoid is a quiet way of saying a mountain dweller or a cave dweller or a caveman or a prehistoric man. Right? Okay. okay. You know, what you just said um, really has me thinking because when okay, after Ham looked upon his father Noah and then Salam, and his fourth son Canaan was cursed, is there any quote prior to Leviticus that will prove that Canaan came out in Albino? Because that's an issue that these brothers can't see. Well, okay, well they can see it. Believe me, they see it. Oh, they, they can just, see it. Yeah, they just, that's how they make their living. They just have to realize that they don't have to make their living off that form of propagation. I just need a quote. Yeah, yeah well, quote. okay. When you go, when you look at Genesis nine twenty-five. Right? If you go back prior to that, you see that Canaan is being cursed before he's born. Okay. So follow that? It speaks about these are descendants of Noah. And then it gives you Cush um, and Ham. Mm -hmm. Then it says Canaan, the son of Ham. Canaan wasn't born yet. You follow that? Mm -hmm. Now, by the time we leave there and go over to Leviticus, what we come up with is I, I, it says in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 33, talking to Moses and Aaron, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I will give to you for a possession, he stops and says, and I have placed the plague in the house of your possession. You see that? Uh -huh. In Leviticus, the 13th chapter will tell you that this plague is leprosy. It says an old leprosy okay. of old. The reason why they're saying of old there is because it's taking it all the way back to the curse of Canaan. You follow that? Okay. Now what they must do then is study the word Canaan and then the tribes of the Canaanites. If you read the Jehovah Witnesses book, make sure of all things, on the 133rd page in the second paragraph, they confess right in the book that the curse of Canaan is not black people. They say whose descendants are white. So in Christian doctrine and in the new uh, Rise Bible, the Rise Bible, the Bible that the Christian preachers are uh, suggested to use, the new version of it, coming from the Dead Sea Scrolls with a commentary under the word canon, they say Caucasians whose descendants have been confused as being black, talking about the Mormon doctrine that blacks are cursed as canon. All of these modern-day Christian scholars who are really white with blue eyes are starting to confess that canon in their dictionaries and in their encyclopedias of the Bible was the white race. It's only a handful of young men who stand on 42nd Street because they have no place else to stand. If you ask them what are their credentials, and I'm saying that because they launched down here on me last year. And they came in with their triplets and their badges and their cufflinks and their boots and, their, and all that costume stuff. 
And my first question was, does anybody amongst y'all speak biblical Hebrew? You understand why I said that? Yes. Do you speak biblical Hebrew? Don't talk about no Yiddish that you learned from some Jewish tape. Do you speak biblical Hebrew? The answer is definitely no, because nobody speaks biblical Hebrew today. It's a dead language. So the first problem is, how are you getting these divine translations if you don't speak the, the divine language in which the scripture was sent down in? How are you getting these? Where are you getting your commentaries on your quotes? Has any of you young men spent 10 years in Israel studying in Jordan and read the Dead Sea Souls in the original languages? Yes or no? Of course the answer is no. I'm not interested in the translation, listen again, that you read to me. I'm interested in the commentary that you give to me from the translation. Where are you getting your commentary from when you say, you know, well, this is because Esau was red and hairy and he had white skin under the head. Okay, fine. First of all, that is not in the... Uh, you can't open the Bible and read that and hear, and it says, Esau, Jacob's twin brother, had red hair and he had white skin under the red hair. Right. So somebody is reading in a commentary. You follow that? Yeah, And I want to know, and I did ask, where is your commentary coming from? You know where it came from? It came from 136th Street and 7th Avenue on the fourth floor in the project where their leader lived. And he was with them. And I know that because he left his welfare card here by accident. Ooh. And he had to come back the next day and get it for me personally. Ask him. He'll tell you. And I found it. So I'm like, young man, you know the danger in sitting around and giving people an interpretation without having any facts? You know what you can breathe and cause? If you have facts, present your facts in the right forum. We will continue with the true light after a brief intermission. This is the original sense of Kedar, where we have available a vast selection of books, fair beads, fair rugs, black in Arabic, Quran, and the Old and New Testament of the Bible in Arabic. Also, we have multiple pamphlets and leaflets on the truth, posters and portraits, which display the prophets as they really were, Nubians. Now available, a full-color portrait of the Last Supper, the real Last Supper, portraying the Messiah Jesus and his disciples as they really appeared, as black men, Nubians. The original sense of Kedar is located at 717 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. Or call us at 718-452-9329. We will now continue with the true light. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I'd just like to um, ask you a question about the um, spirit and the soul. I'm just going to read a small part from the Ansar Kofu. It says here, uh, the spirit or nas is a life force that exists in all living things, even plants in respect to Nubian, the black man. His spirit is a shell of the soul from which the emotional body and ability to respond emotionally stems while the body or the shell or the members of the Canaanite race houses the spirit of the jinn on holy spirits. Uh, I don't quite understand what I was reading there. That's why I'm asking you. Everything, I just want you to clarify. Right. The word is al-hayat. Al-hayat means living. Okay? Yeah. Everything that's living has a nest. Mm -hmm. This is why in both Arabic and Hebrew, the word spirit is interpreted as nest. And it's also used like this. If I said nepsi, I would not only mean my spirit, but I would also translate myself. Or nepsuka would mean yourself. 
or Nafsaha herself. You see that? Yeah. So they identified the spirit with the person. And it, it linked right from the physical to the spiritual realm. As opposed as Nafs myself and as Nafsun my spirit. You follow? But yeah. this does not involve the emotional changes of the physical body, which are stimulated through the mind, which comes from the reservoir of mental, you follow? Yeah. Which is filled of soulful things. The soul is the emotional body. This is why even the devil, when he identifies with our music, he calls it soul music. Mm -hmm. Or James Brown, because he can get a person moving, is called the father of soul. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, there's a different word in the language. In Hebrew, it's ruh, and in Arabic, it's ruh. Yeah. And that represents the word from the word rish, meaning wind. Why? Because the master saw the effect that wind has on nature. Meaning, wind blows and forms the pollination process. Mm -hmm. Wind transfers seeds from plants to regrow more seeds. You follow that? Yeah. So they identified the thing that the Almighty put inside man from himself as a part of his spirit that developed man into a living soul. Something that has a seed like the wind that can plant the seed from being to being and, and thus regrow life or procreate. You follow? Yeah. The emotional part of the DNA and the RNA must be inside that semen and that ovum. Why? Children inherit certain traits of their parents, even if they're thousands of miles apart. They will move like their father or act like them. And mainly separated mothers will tell you when they see you do something wrong that you act just like your father right now. You may not even see your father. But you start, you start to do, you talk just like you look, just like you look, you sitting there looking just like your father. That is, that is something that's been passed on into you. That's why they use the word rougher. You follow that? Like a wind. And when they speak about the angelic beings, Coming down, they call them like Gabriel, they call him Ruhukadut. They say a holy soul. Poor translators have said spirit because they don't know the difference between soul and spirit. The soul is the emotional body. Now let me get over to what you want to know. The devil himself is a spiritual being. He remember, he was an angel before he was cast out of heaven, called Lucifer or Zaha in Arabic. You follow that? Yeah. He was the head cherub, they call him, the head of the cherubim, of the 200 angels that fell from grace to find mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11. You follow that? Yeah. So he does have a spirit, and his spirits are unholy spirits. So there are people who are in the church, in the Pentecostal church, slapping tambourines and reaching for a holy spirit and getting unholy spirits, getting possessed, falling out their chairs, foaming from the mouth and rattling on and, and demonic tones and saying they're speaking in tongues. When you read the books of Acts 2 and it starts to explain what tongues is, it tells you tongues is diverse languages, meaning different languages that were being spoken by Jesus' disciples while they were in Galilee that they should not have known being they were born of Galilee and people had come from all over the world to hear them speak and was marveled at the fact that each man heard them speak in their own tongue, meaning people spoke uh, Aramic heard them speak Aramic. The people who spoke Arabic heard them speak Arabic. The Nazarites heard them speak in the Nazarite dialect. The Maccabeans heard them speak the Maccabean dialect, etc., etc., etc. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. So the spirit can, now you can go to Haiti, and I have, or to Nigeria, and I have, and visit the Yoruba villages and see them perform a, have a bende 
and conjure up the Erishi with the Shango, Obatala, Ogun, Yemeya, and different gods, which are really human beings who have died and their descendants, and people do the exact same thing. Fall on the floor, foam at the mouth, kick, and talk in some babbling sound, which is not speaking a language. So there are unholy spirits moving about the world, and there are holy spirits moving about the world. Asa or Jesus was telling people to expect the Holy Spirit. When that Holy Spirit comes, he's going to remove the sin out the world. Correct? Christians claim the Holy Spirit came, but he did not do his job because the world still is full of sin. And you read the book of St. John, chapter 16, when they speak about the comforter, which the Christians try to give us the interpretation as the Holy Spirit, which is the comforter of Pentecost, the, you know, the Pentecostal comforter, but yet the world is still engaged in more sin than ever. So if what Jesus said the comforter was coming to do, if that was him, he sure didn't do it. So there are unholy spirits. Jesus referred to these unholy spirits as legions at one time. Demons, multiple amount of demons that inherit in people, who reside in people. You follow that? He says things are casting out of demons. So the world is full of two types of angelic beings. Good angels called seraphim in the Bible, and bad angels called cherubim in the Bible. You follow? Yeah. So the spirit in the white man that gives him life and makes him live and makes him cry and makes him appear to show emotions is being prompted from an unholy spirit. But the inside you, the thing that makes you continue to tolerate the abuse of the white man and still try to find a way to get him into heaven, because I don't blame the Sunnis, the brothers who follow the Sunnah, it's the God-like qualities in them that's trying to make them forgive the whole world the way the Heavenly Father would forgive them for them. Because we are as dirty to Allah as the devil is to us. We are the devils to Allah. As black and as proud and as pure as we think we are, we are the devils to Allah, and the devil is the devil to us. And we're asking Allah to forgive us, then we will have to learn to forgive the devil. You understand that? Yeah. In this day and time, we are not in a position to forgive anybody. We haven't even got our soul restored. Now look at it. The Lord is my shepherd. The 23rd Psalm. If you read the 22nd Psalm, you'll read about the crucifixion of David. And now David's going to talk about his soul coming back to the world the way the Christians make it sound like it's talking about Jesus. The 23rd, 22nd Psalm is David's crucifixion. The 23rd Psalm is his regaining of his soul. Let me bring this to the present day and let it apply to us. The Lord is my shepherd. That means the first thing you've got to do is become a sheep. You see, they would share the sheep and make the white robes that they wore. As a garb of righteousness, referred to in Revelation chapter 4 as the white robes around about the throne. Referred to in the Quran as the garb of the Hawar Yuna from Hawar, pure white. The, the ones who down in white or suffer, pure white robes. So the first one, we make the statement, the Lord is my shepherd, we have to garb ourselves. And become one of the sheep of his pasture. And let the staff that he holds govern us in order not to bring the rod of Allah down on us. The Lord is my shepherd, and making him my shepherd, I shall not want. If I that, yeah. if I put myself, my total self, body and soul, in the hands of the Messiah, who people are calling the Christ, if I put my total self in his care, I should not want. Now, people are going to say, Imam Asa sounds like a Christian. I keep telling these people, I am a Christian. They keep saying, I'm a Sunni Muslim who has went astray. And I keep saying, no, I am a man who believes in the return of the Messiah. If that makes me a Christian, then I'm a Christian. So leave me alone and classify me amongst the Christians who will be saved. 
<laughs> but they want to make me an Orthodox Sunni Muslim who has went astray so they can call me a cult or a schism from Sunni Islam, which is wrong. I'm telling y'all what I teach. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If I give him the range of my life, I should not want. I should be willing to surrender to his will. You follow that? Yeah. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. That not only means that he grew all the vegetation, but it means like the Quran says, Razaknahum yunfikun. A Razaka is one of Allah's names, Razaku, meaning the provider. He's the one that provides all of the sustenance needed to survive under the sun. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. What is that? Still waters is tranquility. It means nobody threw a rock and made a wave or a ripple. Still waters come around the time of offer, as the easing tide has begun to settle before the sun appears to set. If you look across the water, it appears to be still. It's supposed to be the most tranquil point in time. It's a symbol of paradise. If all that, he leaves him beside the still water. What's the next verse? He restores my soul. You see that? He restores my soul. My spirit comes from my creation. My soul comes from my creator. I have been engulfed in the spiritual thing and I've gotten away from the soulful thing. I am no longer a child or a son of the Most High. I've become a son of man. And I started to think like a man and act like a man, and want like a man, and desire like a man, and kill like a man, and hate like a man, and fight like a man. And then I want to be, I want to be given the right to go back into heaven like an angel. But if I want to get back into heaven like an angel, I have to take off the armor of manhood and become a son of God. And that's why Jesus said, as many as believe on me, to them I give the power to become the son of God. Even if they believe on my name, even if it's in the future and they haven't even seen me, but they still have faith in my work, they'll have the power to become sons of God. Okay? He restores my soul. Now I am divine again. So what does he do? He leadeth me to the path of righteousness for whose name's sake? His name's sake. For his name's sake, not for mine. I am this. I am this. I'm a priest after all the Melchizedek. I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, I'm a this. Everybody's a I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a that. Nobody wants to be a humble servant of Allah. Nobody wants to be just a sheep in his flock. Everybody got to be the reverend or the pastor or the preacher or the imam or the rabbi or the leader or the Messiah or the Savior. They just can't be a humble servant. He leads me to the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when death comes to knock upon my door, I will not fear evil. I have no fear because what? I know that shepherd is going to lead me in the right direction. I know my heavenly father. I know that his Messiah is going to lead me right. The way Moses took the staff and parted the waters and let all the children of Israel out, I know that the next staff bearer is going to be the Messiah, Jesus, as y'all call Christ. And he is going to come with the staff from his father, and he is going to part the waters, and the children are going to walk out of this mess. That is going to happen. And that's what I believe. 
when I stop believing that, I no longer have any reason to live. Because everything in the future is death and destruction and disease and war and murder. Because the world is in the hands of the devil right now. And all he prompts is war. They didn't, they didn't take down a wall in, in a Russia and Germany. They tore down the wall in Germany. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. They, didn't just, they didn't celebrate because the wall came down. They took pics and hatchets and they chopped it down. That tells you the, about the future of that nation. What they're going to be built upon. Yea, do I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, because thou art with me. Now check this. Thy rod and thy staff to comfort me. That's what the brother said earlier. The goods and the bad. I got to learn to take the goods and the bad. When things go my way, I'm so thankful to my heavenly father. Oh, mashallah, like the brother said, inshallah, alhamdulillah. But when things are not going my way, I'm cursing them. And in the English language, y'all yell it out. And as soon as you get mad, you say, God, and then you damn him. Comes right out your mouth, God, and then you say, damn, right after it. When it doesn't go your way. It says, thy rod and thy staff. The rod is the means by which you are judged. It says, spare the rod and spoil the child. We all know that. If our fathers and mothers didn't spank us at the right time, 90% of y'all wouldn't be sitting there. You'd probably be in jail or on drugs. But most of y'all had those kind of parents who or father that when you got ready to do something wrong, you didn't get money. He just looked at you and said, huh. But the father that's sitting back drinking beer and smoking a cigarette and watching a baseball game, his son is in jail or on drugs. You follow that? And some of you had to liberate yourselves out of it because you was in jail and on drugs and you became your own father and learned how to heal yourself. But others of you are in jail right now and on drugs because your father spared the rod and thus he spoiled the child. You. You follow that? We are right now under his rod. We are suffering people. The world does not seem to care about us. We don't see the future. All we can see in front of us is suffering and agony and pain. That's the rod. But it's followed by the staff of guidance. Whenever a people is in need of guidance, Allah says in the Holy Quran, I do not help a people until they set out to help themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When y'all make up your minds, y'all are tired of this mess the devil has been fixing upon y'all. As a nation of people, you want to get together and start to build and do something for yourself like the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said, then you will find the blessings of Allah with you. As long as you sitting around waiting for welfare, and you turn the word back, which it comes out to be farewell, as long as you sitting around waiting for that, waiting for the man to give you Blue Cross and Medicaid and WIC and Social Security and Social Services and Equal Rights and Civil Rights, what is wrong with you? No man can't give you none of those things. Those are things you take by your right to have them. And if you don't have the power to take them, you're not entitled to them. And if they give them to you, you won't be able to keep them because you can't defend it. Because they gave you a bunch of rights back in Dr. Martin Luther King's time. And they took them back and nobody can't do nothing about it. Huh? The rods and staff who comfort you. What's the last one? He what? Thou prepares the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Here we are in the midst of the enemy. And the truth is coming in to set us free. The Lord is preparing a table spread before us because our cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And we are to dwell in the house, in the house, in the house, not in my house or your house. We are to dwell like the children of Israel in the tabernacle, in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. Forever. That's our salvation. Like Israel was scattered, all the tribes were scattered. I'm looking at a room of the tribes scattered. 
Some of y'all was influenced by the Jehovah Witness. Some of y'all was influenced by Five Descendants. Some of y'all influenced by Seven Day Adventists. Some of y'all influenced by Pentecostals. Some of y'all Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and some of y'all are just insane. The tribe has been scattered like it was in the time of Joshua when they first got into the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, and they went up under the Canaanite people and they oppressed them and they abused them. And then the day came for y'all to get out of here like they got out of Israel. It tells you that right in Genesis chapter 15. So now it's time to get out of here. But you've got to come together and form the tabernacle of the Most High. And just like in the time of the walls of Jericho, we've got to learn to sing in perfect harmony. Dr. Martin Luther King had it, but they didn't let him hold it. He said, sing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. He was trying to get the walls of Jericho to fall by saying, we shall overcome. The white man heard it. He saw a million people of engage upon Washington Monument and sing it and saw the effect that it had and he said, kill that man. I don't care whether what he's saying is black Muslim or black panther or young lord or save the world or integration. Kill that nigga. That might be Moses to them. You follow that? And they killed him. And y'all stopped overcoming because y'all stopped singing together. Just like the children of Israel, we got to come together under one roof. We got to reorganize ourselves. We got to re-identify with ourselves. It's going to be difficult because we've been spoiled, like the book of Revelation chapter 18 says, we've been spoiled by the delicacies of this harlot. We've learned to live deliciously in her. But now we've got to learn to sacrifice for our nation and start to build a Nubian nation outwardly and form the tabernacle of the Most High and set up the ark of the tabernacle and the very angels that Moses was able to bring down in Exodus 15 by setting up the ark of the tabernacle that communicated with them. It says in his revelation, God says, I will be with you and you shall be my people. Don't mean he'll walk down here on the floor with you. It means he will, inherit, he will come into the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, the same way he did with Israel. And no nation under the sun will be able to defeat you if you just come together in his name. Live for other and by each other in his name. Let him have the staff and follow. If I, you understand what I'm saying? That's all he's asking of you. And all you want to do is go to the tree and keep eating the forbidden fruit. He keeps saying, stop eating the forbidden fruit and I'll save you. You go right to the tree and eat it. He says, stop, you eat it. Every time he introduces a new drug, we take it. He's still eating the forbidden fruit. You all with me? It's not a very complicated thing. We just got to get together and and shuck all the garbage that the devil and taught us and get familiar with our own again. Get in tune with ourselves. That's all. And when we make that one step towards the Lord upon all other islands, he's going to make ten steps towards us. And the devil cannot stand against that. You have been listening to the unshakable guidance and teachings of Asaid al-Imam Isa al-Hadi al-Mahdi, the undisputed man of our time. No one has allowed themselves to be questioned with such a variety of questions only to fulfill the eager minds of many in search of the truth. Alimamisa is the author of the most dynamic books in history, dealing with the truth, not theory, philosophies, or fairy tales. Just simple truth to all your questions, no matter what topic. How did Jonah survive three days and three nights in the belly of the whale? Does the Creator really sit on a throne? What and where is hell? Are angels extraterrestrial beings? Finally, the time has come for the whole truth to be heard. The Nubian Islamic Hebrew Mission would like to invite you to write or send questions to True Light, 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. The public is invited to newcomers class held every Sunday, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. 
at the Nubian Islamic Hebrew Mission, 548 Hart Street, Brooklyn, New York. People interested in purchasing these pamphlets of peace can visit our bookstore, Original Tent of Kedar, 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, or purchase them from any of our brothers dressed in white, representing the Nubian Islamic Hebrew Mission throughout your city. Again, the address for letters and questions is True Light, 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. Assalamu alaikum. This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. This evening I'm going to talk about chosenness, and we already know the answer to the question, and that is, of course, we are the real chosen people. If you happen to be Jewish, or if you happen to be Christian, or if you happen to be Muslim, there is some aspect of that in our sense of who we are as religious people. But I'm not going to talk about it in that way. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to actually tell you three stories, give you three narratives, and then I'm going to read a piece of the book. You all have the handouts, right? You have the texts. Anybody doesn't have a text, raise your hand. Anybody? Everybody? Pretty much everybody has one. There are a couple of people, maybe someone can pass them the text. I tell my students, I, I teach a lot of text because I teach both at USC and at Hebrew Union College. At Hebrew Union College, I teach students who are training to become rabbis and Jewish educators, and we study a lot of religious text. And uh, we talk a lot about text. And I tell my students always, never believe anyone who stands in front of you and says the good book says this, or the good book says that. Insist on them giving you the text. Because I can say anything. I'm an authority, right? I'm a rabbi. I'm a professor. I can tell you the good book says this, and you shouldn't believe me. No one should believe anyone who stands in front of you and tells you what scripture says unless you have a copy of the scripture in front of you because I can say anything I want to. So I'm giving you the copies of scripture or at least the pieces that we're going to be looking at this evening. I'm going to give you more than what we're going to look at this evening. And having done that, you still shouldn't trust me because keep in mind that I have selected those texts to give you. I could have selected another set of texts and I probably could tell you a different story. So you have to be careful about what texts are being given to you. Remember that scripture is like a sea. It's like an ocean. It has a lot of material in it. And there are many ways to understand the material of scripture. And you have to be sensitive to that as well when you're reading the text. So, okay, so I gave you the text. You're aware of that. You also have to be careful because I translated those texts. And I translated those texts a certain particular way, and I'm going to be reading them in a particular way. So you have to be a little bit suspicious about that as well. So having said that, I hope you'll trust me for the rest of the evening as I tell you these stories. Story one. Uh, living in Los Angeles, I'm in the movie business in my mind. 
And I look at the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. We're going to be using PC terms now. We don't call that text or that set of texts, that scripture, the Old Testament, because that's a theological statement that those books of scripture are the Old Testament. That is a testament of an old covenant that is now no longer really enforced. That's a theological position, a Christian classical theological position. We don't want to take a theological position on that text. So the PC term for looking at the so-called Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. So we'll be looking at the Hebrew Bible first. And in the Hebrew Bible, the first book, Genesis, is a book that begins with the creation of the universe. Now, it's really interesting what happens with this book, because what we do is we have a kind of focusing. It's almost like a movie. Sometimes you you'll see the beginning of a movie, you'll see a big panorama shot, and then it will slowly focus on the characters or the theme or the environment, the location in which you're going to really center your view. And that's what happens in the Bible as well. First is God of the entire universe, not just the world, the entire universe. God creates the, the luminous lights in the heavens, creates the sky, and creates the earth. Then you have a first narrowing, because the history that is the Bible, because the Bible is very much a historical text, the Bible's history begins with the history of creation of everything and immediately begins the job of focusing. The first focus is on earth, on the world. And then God proceeds to create living beings. And God does this in a very systematic way. The Hebrew says, God says, Vayihi, Vayihi or, let there be light, right? And, or he says, Yehi or, let there be light. And then the narrator says, Vayihi or, and there was light. And that's the trope. There's a kind of a, a rhythm. God says, Yehi, something, and then Vayihi, it becomes. And that goes for the creation of the seas, the waters, the firmament, and then all of the animals on earth and animals in the water. Everything is equal. Yehi, Vayihi, until you get to one specific animal, one specific creation, there's a new focus. The language changes, and we're focusing in now the history of the world, no longer the history of the universe, history of the world is now going to be focused on the history of humankind. The creation of humankind is different than the creation of every other creature on earth. Second narrowing. And so God creates Adam first and then Eve, or in another version, both Adam and Eve together, or the man and the woman together. They're two different creation references. Some people say two different creation stories. And we proceed with the history of the universe, the history of the earth, through the history of humankind. Anything else, any living being on earth, any aspect of the universe that is going to continue in the story of the history of the world or the, or the universe is through the history of humanity. And so we have four stories after creation, four stories about humanity. And those four stories are four stories of failure. What's the first failure? How do humans fail the first time? Let's hear it. They, what do they do? They eat from the tree. That was a no-no. That was a failure. God speaks to Adam. God speaks to Eve. They fail. Fine. Then the next failure is what? What happens in the next generation? 
Cain and Abel. Uh, and what is the error? What's the, what's the failure there? Fratricide, killing a sibling. Tempting, but not a good idea. What's the next failure of humanity? Noah and the flood, right? Humanity is violent. God decides we're, we're going to end it now and start over again. Each time God has a relationship with Adam and Eve. God has a relationship with Cain, at least, Cain and Abel. God has a relationship with Noah. But the relationship is fleeting. It's not all that involved. And then what is the fourth failure of humanity? No. Fourth failure is the next story, the Tower of Babel. So there's a Tower of Babel. Humanity has great arrogance and hubris and decides it's going to get up to God. And God uh, doesn't allow that to happen, and humanity becomes dispersed. Then we have the next narrowing. So what we first we narrowed from the universe to Earth, then we narrowed into the creation from animals to humans, and now we have a new narrowing of focus in the book of Genesis, and that begins with chapter 12 of Genesis, when God has a special relationship with one individual. Who is that individual? That individual is Abraham. So let's take a look at the first text on the first page, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, his name is Abram here, go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Why did God choose Abraham? According to the book of Genesis? It's a trick question. Uh, where does it say that in the book of Genesis? Abraham rejected, the answer is Abraham rejected idolatry. Where does it say that in the book of Genesis? It doesn't. All right. So it, the first reference to Abraham is the one verse before the first verse of Genesis 12. It's not there. I can assure you, don't trust me. Look at it yourself. I can assure you it doesn't give you the answer. The answer is not explicit in the book of Genesis. Abraham is chosen by God. God has a relationship with Abraham. And from then on, God's relationship with humanity changes. First, God places Adam and Eve in the garden, basically says, go for it. They fail. Cain and Abel, an instruction here or there, go for it, Cain and Abel, failure. The Generation of the flood, total failure. The generation of the dispersion, that is the Tower of Babel, another failure. From now on with Abraham, there's a new modus operandi. God is going to be involved personally with this person and then his immediate family and then his extended family and his children who become a set of tribes, eventually a tribal nation, and now the history of humanity is no longer the history of humanity. It's the history of one community of humanity. And all the rest of the humans on earth, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Moabites, you name it, all the people that appear in the Bible only appear insofar as they are in relationship with Abraham and his extended family and descendants. It's the final narrowing of focus and it all happens in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Fascinating. Interesting. Question. 
<laughs> That's a good question. Who wrote it? Who wrote the book? Now, here are the rules of engagement for this evening. You can ask a question, any question, but I may not answer it. The reason I won't answer it is either it will take us a little bit too far off topic and I'm very easily distracted, or because I don't have the answer and I don't want to let you know that I don't really know it. <laughs> so I'll tell you it's off topic. Um, the, the question of who actually wrote scripture is a, is a complex question and we can't really deal with it this evening, I'm sorry. Okay, because we're going be, to get distracted from the direction of where we're going today. So now we have Abraham, we have his family, and that special relationship between Abraham and his family and his descendants is defined in the Hebrew Bible through a, a, an institution called covenant. Covenant is a special relationship, and the covenant par excellence is described in Genesis chapter 17. That's the next box. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, Abram, here, and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk in my ways and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Now, I bolded walk in my ways and be blameless. That's because I think that is actually giving us part of the basic reason for the relationship between, or at least the demands of the relationship between God and Abraham. The Hebrew is, It means something like this, really. If you walk around in front of my face, this is God speaking, you will be innocent. You will be blameless. In the Hebrew Bible, until the last book, the last chapter of the last book in Daniel chapter 12, there is a reference to a world to come or perhaps a resurrection. But that's the only reference that is clear in the entire Hebrew Bible to something that happens to us uh, after death that is related to our behavior on life, in life. That is, that there's, there is no sense in the Hebrew Bible of punishment in hell or reward in heaven. In the Hebrew Bible, punishment and reward is all meted out in this world. After you die in the Hebrew Bible, you go to a place called Sheol. It means something like the place of question. Everyone goes to the same place. Evil people go. Righteous people go. There is no sense of heaven and hell in terms of punishment in an afterlife. That comes into the world of the Near East only at the very end of the Second Temple period at the end, very end, and after the canonization or the formation of the Hebrew Bible. So one is rewarded or punished by God in the Torah, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, solely on this earth, right? There is no sense of reward in the world to come. So God is saying to Abraham, I think here, if you walk around in front of my face, so I watch you, and you do as I say, and I am involved with you, and you respond to me positively, you will be blameless. If you're blameless, that means I will protect you. The gods in the ancient Near East protected the people who protected the gods. There was a symbiotic relationship. If you weren't good to the gods, the gods wouldn't be good to you. Here is a monotheistic image or notion of God, and God is saying to Abraham, you do the right thing, and you will be rewarded. That's the basic statement that's being made here. Okay, so there is a covenant 
covenantal relationship between God and a particular family. The sign of the covenant is circumcision, and that is the way it works for many generations. Until the Israelites go down to Egypt, when there's famine in the land, and after 400 years in Egypt, according to the biblical chronology, basically, they are redeemed from Egypt through an exodus, and they now... They went down, there were 72 people who went down to Egypt. That is the 12 sons of Jacob and their families, 72 people. Do you know how many people left Egypt according to the book of Exodus? According to the book of Exodus, 600,000 males of fighting age left Egypt. 600,000 men between the ages of probably 16 and 24. If you then extrapolate a full population from that, you arrive at roughly 2 million. So according to the book of Exodus, 2 million people now belong to this community that started simply as Abraham and his family. And they left Egypt. And when they left Egypt, they went into the desert and they received a revelation from God in the Torah. This is a, a reaffirmation of that covenant slightly differently. It's a new version. Now it seems as if God can't have a personal relationship with every individual of the two million people in that community that is called Israel now. Israel. Uh, Israel is a term not in traditional Jewish law and in the biblical world. It doesn't mean the modern state of Israel. It means the people of Israel or the children of Israel. Those are the descendants of Abraham through the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, and a number of other communities that joined them when they left in the Exodus. Uh, there are uh, a couple of references that, that weren't just a kinship group. It wasn't just a genealogical relationship of all of those people that received the Torah or the revelation of Mount Sinai, but rather a combination of Israelites and other communities as well. And then at Mount Sinai, a new formulation of the old covenant is taking place. The covenant is renewed, and we see that basically in Exodus chapter 19. So it's also on page one. I'll just read it to you pretty quickly and you'll see that now, instead of a personal relationship between God and a small family, where the family has to behave in front of God properly, God is going to uh, give instruction, which is called in the Hebrew Torah, Torah instruction. And this huge, large, massive community now has to uh, obey God's instruction that is written in the Torah and remains in that special relationship with God. If they do obey the instructions, they will be rewarded. And if they don't, they are punished. So Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon after the Israelites, that is Israel, had gone forth from the land of Egypt, Moses went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me conscientiously and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. I'm sorry, of all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a pretty strong statement. Now the entire community is in a chosenness relationship divine election with God. All of this is narrated in the text of the Torah and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. 
And this becomes a national literature through which, directly or indirectly, all three families of monotheism understand their origins. This story that I told you, and I told you, remember, I told you my version of the story. This story, in one way or another, is understood to be the foundational story of all three religious traditions. That's the first story that I'm telling you. Now I'm going to tell you a different story. A story about how religion functioned in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, there wasn't really much of a difference between a tribal community and a religious community. Every nation, when I say nation, I don't mean a nation state. I mean an ethnic community, an extended ethnic community. Every ethnic community had its own ethnic god. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world of polytheism, there were powers that were understood by the people that ran the universe. Not just a single god, but a variety of gods. Okay, this is polytheism. And in the way it was practiced in the ancient Near East, there were powers or gods or goddesses who ran the weather, who were in charge of fertility to make sure that your crops came in, that your, your goats and sheep had babies so that you could survive. There were powers or gods that were associated with the weather. Did I say that already? And that also with the seas and the water, issues like that. But in addition to that, each tribal community had its own tribal god. And they had a very special relationship with that god. We know this. We know this not only from biblical writings, but from the writings that we've dug up in archaeological digs. We have confirmation between some sections of the Hebrew Bible and archaeological remains that include stories. We have a famous story about a conflict between the Israelites and the Moabites. It's told in the book of Kings. I'm sorry, in the book of Numbers. No, it's told in the book of Kings, I think. And it's also told in a stone. The, the same story of the same battles were told in a stone called the Moabite stone or the Mesha stone. that actually said the same story, except that uh, each side said they won. So can't get any corroborative information to know exactly who did. Someday we'll, in an archaeological dig, we'll find the DVD and then we'll know. But until then, we have to be patient. So all the various groups. So, for example, the Moabites had a god named Chemosh. The Ammonites had a god named Milcom. The Philistines had a god named Dagon. The Tyrians from Tsur had a goddess, a goddess named Ashtoreth. The Babylonians, Marduk. And the Israelites had a god as well. Now I'm sort of making a transition and I'm going to be a little bit, how do I say this? Uh, syncretistic, sectarian, and heretical. According to current biblical scholarship, the Israelite community, that people that we call the Israelites or the children of Israel, were polytheists at one time. And they made a transition from polytheism to monotheism. It took many generations. What we think of when we read the Hebrew Bible today is we think of Israel as a monotheistic community. But there's a lot of evidence in the Hebrew Bible that it was a very difficult transition to transition from polytheism to monotheism. And the Israelites were the first community to do that successfully. The Israelites had a God at one point that was no more powerful 
than the gods of the neighboring peoples. And that God had a name because all the gods had a name. Why did a God have to have a name? Because when you made an offering to the God, you wanted to make sure that your God got to smell the sweet aroma of the offering and not somebody else's God. So you said, I'm making an offering in the name of so-and-so so that that God would smell the aromas. Now, that's important because in the old polytheistic system of the ancient Near East, there was a symbiotic relationship between the gods and the people. The gods needed the people as much as the people needed the gods. The gods were more powerful, but they needed to be fed by the people. How do we know this? There's vestiges of it, even in the Bible. But if you know the Gilgamesh epic, you know the Noah story in the Gilgamesh epic or the flood story in the Gilgamesh epic? Uh, the gods destroyed humanity on earth. Why did they destroy humanity in the Gilgamesh epic? Anybody know? Too noisy. Too noisy. I, I mean, I can relate to that too. But it was a little excessive because once people were destroyed, the gods had nobody to feed them. And so when the Noah character, do you know his name in the Gilgamesh epic? Yes, Udnapishtim. He, when he made it to the island and he offered an offering of thanksgiving, the image that is in that book is phenomenal. It says the gods flew around the smoke of the sacrifice like flies because they were so hungry because they hadn't been fed for such a long period of time. So it was important to know who your God was so that the sacrifice went to the right place. And it's also telling because by knowing the name of the God, oh, this is really fun. <laughs> by knowing the name of the God, it says something about the relationship between the community and the God or the power that is in relationship with that community. What does it say? It says that there was more equality in the relationship than there would be if you had a relationship with a God whose name you didn't know. What does that mean? It's a psychology of knowing names. You know, if you've ever been to a, a party and somebody knows your name and you don't know their name and you feel very much at a disadvantage, yeah? Or you were dumb enough to walk down the street with a cap that had your name on it and somebody who you didn't know like what happened to me when I was really nerdy. I mean, I, I got over it, right? The nerdy part, I think. Uh, I walk down the street and somebody says, hey, Ruvain. Oh, and I don't know who the guy was. He was bigger than me and he made fun of me because I had a name on my cap and I said, right, I felt really stupid because he had a certain power over me because he knew my name. I didn't know his name. There is a sense of relationship and connection of knowing names and knowing identification. In, in many cultures, uh, baby children are not named until after they become viable. So that's so that the angel of death or the evil powers may not get them. So there is a sense of knowing names. The name of the God of Israel was made of four letters that we do not know how to pronounce in the Jewish world. Some Christian communities pronounce it Yahweh, right? Or Jehovah. But what that really is talking about, what that is conveying is that in the ancient world, the Israelites knew the name of their God, just like the Moabites and the Ammonites knew the names for their gods. But when at some point in history, the Israelites made a transition from a polytheistic relationship with a limited God to a sense of a universal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, it was impossible, it was inconceivable that they should know the name. You know, we don't know the name of God in, in the Islamic tradition either. It's just Allah simply means the God. It's not Frank, not Jim, 
not Penelope, right? So that seems to be indicative of that change. Now, if you don't believe me, and you, it's okay for you not to believe me, it's okay for you to be wrong. Um, I'm continuing on this motif earlier. Let's turn to the next uh, item on page two, Second Kings. I'm just going to read you the first couple of verses here. This is a statement about the reforms that were made by a king named Josiah. He destroyed all of the idols that were being worshipped in Jerusalem by the Israelites because he was a real staunch supporter of monotheism. Then the king ordered the high priest, Hilkiah, the priests of the second rank and the guards of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord, this is yet, all of the objects made for Baal and Asherah. These were gods, it was a god and a goddess, and all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. He removed the ashes to Bethel. He suppressed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to make offerings at the shrines in the towns of Judah and in the environs of Jerusalem. And those who made offerings to Baal, to the sun and moon and constellations, all the hosts of heaven. It goes on. There's a lot more. So Israel, this community, was the first community to make the successful transition from polytheism to monotheism. And Israel, and Israelites, eventually Jews, were associated with monotheism. They were the founders of monotheism. Now, there's evidence, by the way, that there may have been other communities that were monotheist even before Israel, or maybe proto-monotheist, or nearly monotheist. One, uh, one option is in Egypt, Akhenaton, Akhenaten, uh, who was a, uh, probably at least a proto-monotheist, but it didn't survive. The, the idea didn't, didn't hold out. Israelites were the ones that were able to, to make it work and kept to it. And so the Israelites were, uh, made that transition to monotheism. There's one thing I neglected to tell you in this story, and that is that when you have a personal relationship with a tribal god, you have a very special relationship. It's, it's like, like we're made for each other. Your God helps you. When you go into battle against your nasty neighbors who live on the other side of the river and are peeing upstream, your God goes into battle with you. And their God goes into battle with them. And the more powerful God or the better God or the God who is better fed by his community through sacrifices is the God that prevails. So there's a sense of intimacy between a community and its God. The community probably really loves its God as well as it probably fears its God. And that is a relationship that I describe as chosenness. It was like we were chosen for each other. It's an intimacy. Now, the Israelites had that notion with their God. And although we have no written evidence that the Moabites or the Ammonites or the, Ash, the Ashdodians or the, the Philistines they never wrote, we are the chosen people that we have found in any text so far. I am extrapolating. I assume that probably everybody in the ancient Near East had the sense of chosen relationship with their own God. Israel retained that sense of personal relationship with the God of Israel, because it's called the God of Israel in the Torah, when it made that transition to monotheism. So it associated its once tribal God, now the God of the universe, who is the God of all, with a special intimate relationship. It's an accident of history. Because how could the God of the universe also have a chosen relationship with one small people? It doesn't make sense. And yet it's so deeply embedded in the culture 
of ancient Israel that they couldn't let it go, even though there were some ambivalence, and we'll look at some texts that show that they were ambivalent about it. So the Israelites were monotheists, and they retained the sense of intimacy with the God who is now the God of all humanity. Now, what happened to all of those ancient religions of the ancient Near East? They all died out. The only surviving vestige of the ancient Near Eastern religions is the religion of Israel. And the religion of Israel, which is now Judaism, carries within it some vestiges of those old times. One is that sense of relationship with God, a kind of sense of chosen relationship, an accident of history. Now, all of the ancient religions died out by the Roman period, the end of the Roman period. And that's a longer story. It's in the book. I would tell you, you should buy the book, but what can I say? It's not here. Um, Now I'm going to move up a little bit in history, and I'm going to end this piece of the story. When in the period of the Greco-Romans, around the time of Jesus, and even before, 100 years before Jesus, there was a developing anxiety and malaise among many Greeks and Romans because they didn't really believe their old religious traditions. They were into philosophy. They were also into sacrifice. They didn't, it didn't make sense anymore. The bickering gods in Olympus acting like humans. There was a better option. Here it is. There's one great God, a moral, ethical God who created the universe. Not bickering, not silly, not jealous, not having sexual relationships with humans and creating Hercules and doing dumb human things. Islam is supposed to be a religion that teaches us how to live. Salutations of Allah 
on all of his prophets and his apostles and on the Messiah, the anointed one, and on the Mahdi, the guide, and on the Mujahideen, the reformer, which was all sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send peace and we send peace throughout the boundless universe to all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. And now, the true light, featuring Al-Sayyid, Al-Imam Isa, Al-Hadi, Al-Mahdi. Assalamu alaikum. Imam, I have a question. Um, I don't really understand. I was taught under the Christian faith that um, Jesus, when he was here on this earth, that he was here as a blood sacrifice. To, to save the world of the sin. Now my question is, if he was not, was he killed? I mean, was he crucified? If he was not crucified, then were we forgiven? I'm confused. Okay, step one is in the Christian teachings, they do claim that Jesus' presence was for the removal of sin from the world. However, here we are at 19, right, 87, and tonight, when you look on the news, you hear a catastrophe of sin. So therefore, that was not complete. Here's why you know. Yes, Jesus was sent into the world to improve the world of sin and righteousness, correct? Mm -hmm. But if you open your Bible to the book of St. John's 13.22, then the disciples looked one on another, doubting who he spent. Now they were leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter, right? Therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. For Jesus spoke about someone coming. He said, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give the supper. When I have dipped it, Jesus is now telling them to look out for a man named Judas, correct? Mm -hmm. Who they were trying to find out in this meeting who was this person, this mysterious person who Jesus said was going to deliver him for destruction. I'm saying that to say that Jesus, even up to that point, at that last supper, he thought that he was going to die. He really thought it was over. But prior to that, he gave them mention of a comforter. Let's see how it starts off in 16. These things have I spoken unto ye, that ye should not be offended. Upset. He's talking to them. I'm telling you about something so you don't be upset, Jesus said. They shall put you out of the synagogues. You see that statement there? By Jesus making that statement, he told you what religion they were following in the time that he was there. They definitely wasn't put, being put out of churches. And they can't say that's because there was no churches, because the churches is mentioned throughout the scriptures. But these people were going to synagogues, his followers. He said they're going to put you out of the synagogue. So they were Israelites following Judean teachings, not Christians following anything new. You see that? Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he does a law's service. He said the day is going to come. That when people start to kill you people, his followers, they're going to think they're doing the right thing for God. That's a frightening thought. And these things will they do unto you. 
because they have not known the Father nor me. He separated himself from the Father again. They have not known the Father nor me. He didn't see himself as the Father. We understand that, right? Four. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was not with you. I didn't tell you all these things when I first came because I wasn't in your company. Why? Because John, in the books of Mark, the Baptist, had control of the congregation before Jesus came. Jesus didn't teach them about a comforter or a successor in the beginning, he said, because I wasn't in your midst. Now that I'm with you, I'll tell you. He's gone. But now I go my way to him that what? Jesus admits that he's going someplace back to some being that had sent him. And we took that word sent and brought it back to the language. We get Rasul, Rasala, an apostle. That Jesus said, I'm going because I was an apostle, sent. Right? Mm-hmm. And none of you asked me, where the goest thou? I told you I'm going back to someone who sent me, and not one of you disciples have even asked, where are you going? He said to them, see that? Yeah. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. But because I said I'm going to die, y'all are sad. But none of y'all asked me where I was going or how I was going to die. You didn't even ask. So they went to tell you that they took the story and started fabricating their own definition. You didn't ask me. Because if I, if I was Jesus and I said to you, I'm getting ready to go back to heaven, should you be sad or happy? Happy. That's right. But I said, I'm getting ready to get nailed on this cross. Should you be sad or happy? Yeah. If I said, I'm getting ready to get nailed on this cross, that you may be forgiven for your sins. Should you be sad or happy? Confused. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not confused. They're sad. They didn't think of him as dying for them. They didn't see that. Watch. Now, seven. Nevertheless, he said, however, even though, nevertheless, Regardless, I tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. That means he lied before? No, he knows that these people would pervert the things he said, change them. He said, let me tell you the truth. However, knowing how, how you didn't even care to ask me where I was going, however, I will tell you the truth anyway. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, which means better for you that I go away. He told his disciples, you know, it's better for you that I go. Why? Well, if I go not, the comforter will not come unto you. So he made a condition here. The condition is that the comforter could not come while he was there. Question. Go ahead. So the comforter, which he's talking as Muhammad? And I'm going to show you how, I know what you're thinking. So I'll get to that, the Holy Spirit. I will show you. I can make it simple. Jesus said, if you see that spirit, test that spirit to see whether it is of God or not. And then it follows by saying, because many false prophets are gone unto the world. That's the next verse. So therefore, Jesus classified a spirit as a prophet right there. So when you see that spirit, test that prophet to see whether it is of God or not. Because many false prophets are going into the world. So he called a spirit a prophet. Okay? That's for the Christians who say it's the Holy Ghost. Right. And I say it could be the Holy Ghost only because Elizabeth 
got the Holy Ghost before Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mother. Was filled with the Holy Ghost to give birth to John the Baptist. Refer to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 15. And that was before Jesus. Right? So therefore, the Holy Ghost was here before Jesus. But Jesus tells her in this section here, in chapter 16, verse 7, if I don't go, the comforter cannot come. What does he mean by that? But, however, if I depart, if I depart, not when I depart, however, if, it's a, a question here, I depart, I will send him unto you. One prophet always foretells the coming of the next. Right? Okay. And when he, one he, is come, he, another he, will reprove the world of sin. I thought Jesus was supposed to reprove the world of sin. He not. That's right. This comforter was the one that's going to do it. Now let's look at that. A real Muslim don't drink, right? Or smoke cigarettes. Or do all of the devilish things that the world makes so easy. Now, Muhammad came and reproved the world of sin. He came with a doctrine that removed sin. Let's go on. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Then he tells them why. Of sin, why? Because they believe not on me. He goes, your answer. Yes, he was sent into the world to remove the world of sin, but did they believe it? And that's why it was necessary for someone else to come and do the job that he did not do. Because he said, I came to my own in St. John's, but my own receiveth me not. But all those that do, they too will have the power to become the sons of the Most High. But here he has to tell us the reason why the covenant is coming to remove the world of sin, because I was supposed to do it, but you didn't have no faith in me. He goes on. Of righteousness, because what? I go to my father. I go to my father, and what? And you see me no more. Will they see him again? What did he say? Christians keep saying, we'll see him again. He's coming. He's coming out of all the gospel singing. Jesus is coming out of the cloud. We're waiting for him. Let's sing this gospel song. Lord, come. Here we come. Where is he coming? Where is he coming? Jesus said, you ain't going to see me no more. Because he said he sent this angel signifying it. Like I read earlier. He sent this angel representing him in the book of Revelation. Stop looking for him because he's not no little, no blonde hair, blue eyed man. Ain't coming out no clouds for you. So y'all might as well stop. The slave master got you looking up so he can put his hand in your pocket. Amen. You better start looking the white man in the eye and let him know you know who you are. Watch him back up. He can't stand a black person look him in the eye. Try it. He got you looking down because he can't take them, them eyes of flames of fire, that pain, that sadness, that soul, that gospel that comes in your eyes when you look at him. Because he, know, he knows what he did to you. Go on. He says, of judgment, because the what? The prince of this world is judged. Because they judged him. He came to cast judgment on the world as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and in turn got judged. <laughs> he said, Muhammad is going to pass judgment on y'all. And Muhammad came in speaking about the day of judgment. If you open the Holy Quran to the first book, so the Fatiha, he calls Allah Maliki Yawmiddin, the day, the master of the day of judgment. Right away. He, the first thing Muhammad passed on everybody was what Jesus said he would. Judgment on the world. Then of judgment. Why? Because the prince 
of this world is judged. That was him. Not the prince of heaven. He didn't say he was the prince of heaven. He said he was the prince of... That's right. Go ahead. Now, number 12. I have yet... Here's another thing. Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. He said, I have more things to teach you people. However, you all ain't ready for Now, how can you go and start a church when the preacher or the teacher is telling you he hasn't finished teaching you? He just said, I got a lot of things to teach you. So you didn't graduate. You didn't get no diploma. But you went out and formed the Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, Pentecostals, Protestant, Lutheran, and all his name, and, and the spiritual Baptist, etc., etc., etc. When the man who's the head or the prince of the university who was supposed to be teaching you people didn't finish teaching you, yet you set a school up unpracticed without your degrees without your credentials, and of course, without the proper information. So how do you know what Jesus is going to say next? So how do you set the church up before he finished telling both the last thing he's going to say is, and therefore, I messed up and we got to start all over again. <laughs> how do you know that there's like a teacher teaching you how to dance? And then you say, well, who taught you? Well, I figured this out myself. Would you stay there? No. Shoot, I could do this on my own. Let me get out of here. Well, I was going to somebody's school for two weeks. And you didn't finish? No. Let me get on out of here. This is what you just said. Jesus told them, I want to teach y'all many more things. However, you ain't ready for them. They just wasn't ready for what he had to teach. The spiritual transition from, from transforming them from physical beings back into an angelic state. They were fussing over what they were eating and where they were going to get sandwiches from, what clothes they would wear, and where they'd get their money from. That's all in Matthew 6. He talks about that. Okay, so they couldn't have set no church up because he ain't finished. He said, however, when he, another he, the spirit of truth, that's Muhammad's name was El-Amin, the truth. And the angel Gabriel came to Muhammad, who was the spirit of the Most High, and told Muhammad to read. And Muhammad told him, I can't read. So he couldn't have said anything of his own. Muhammad didn't teach nothing himself. Everything he's taught the angel put in him because he was considered to them only one who was not qualified to quote scripture. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you. And Muhammad says, guide us to the right path in search of Fatiha again. Guide us right there you know, in the first uh, chapter of the Holy Quran, which has seven verses. He says, guide us to the right path. He will do what? He will guide you to the truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but only whatsoever shall he hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. Now, this man was to be a what? Who is the, what is the man in the Bible called who shows you things to come? A person who shows you things to come is a person that has the power of prophecy. Therefore, Jesus is saying, if they mistranslate, show you things to come, means he would be a prophet. You see that? The Holy Ghost does not come and show you things to come. He comes with the word of the Most High, and when he declares the thing it says in the Bible, be, it is. <laughs> That's what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. Well, the Almighty just declares the thing, and it is. But prophets come and foretell what is going to happen. And Jesus described this comforter as being someone 
who would foretell what is going to happen. You understand? Mm -hmm. Now, in Isaiah 19.26, they make mention of a prophet who's not learned. And when an angel comes to him and said, read, he said, I'm not able to read. Literally, it says it. Okay? Just for those who need to look it up. He shall glorify me. This prophet who would tell them of things to come is going to glorify Jesus. You know that Jesus is mentioned the most out of every prophet of all the history of the scriptures. Jesus' name is mentioned the most in the Quran. He's exalted as being born of a virgin, raised into heaven. He was called the Word of the Most High, the Spirit of Truth, and the illustrious in this world and in the hereafter. Now that's not glorifying a person. I don't know what it is. Muhammad glorified Jesus' name. He's in there more than Moses, Abraham, and everybody else. Okay. He shall glorify me. Why? For he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. All of you people were Jesus' disciples. You were his people. And now you're coming over to Muhammad. You see that? But you're not coming over to Muhammad as a Mohammedan, because the Mohammedans don't know how to glorify Jesus' name. You're coming to a congregation where you hear Jesus' name being mentioned and glorified, because you know it's true. Muhammad received of Jesus. There's parts of the Holy Quran that are identical to that of the Injil. Word for word, in fact. I'm putting it in a book I'm working on now. About the comforter. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. He wanted to clear up that they, he wasn't trying to say that he owns everything. He was trying to say everything that my heavenly Father owns is mine. And that applies to me and you also. Everything that the heavenly Father owns is yours. Now he was just trying to clear up so he didn't think he was on an ego trip. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to my Father. See that quote? First he tells them that after a little while, you shall not see me. And what happened is, after Jesus had his incident, it was a day and a half that they did not see Jesus. And then he appeared later in the upper room, and they saw him again. He was trying to tell them, there's going to be an incident where I'm going to disappear. I am not dead yet. I, am not, I did not go to my father as of yet. A little while and you won't see me. And if you think about that situation between the garden and the wrestle in the garden, and then Jesus is not there, not seen by disciples, and Mary Magdalene sees him, and later on in the evening he comes in, and Dalton Thomas doesn't see him, and then eight days later, it says in the Bible, then he comes to the upper room where Thomas is there. Eight days had passed. That's a little while here. You're not going to see me. Then what does he say? And again, a little while, and he shall see me because I go to my father. And then the second time they saw him after he crossed the desert, what did Jesus do? Descended up into heaven right in front of them. And they stood there watching him go up. And two angels told him, the same way he went up is the way he will return in the latter day. These are all Bible quotes back in the up. Okay? Then said some of his disciples amongst themselves now, 
He's standing there talking to them. And some of them lean over to themselves and say, what is this that he said unto us? A little while, and he shall not see me. And again a little while, and he shall see me. And because I go to my father. Here he's talking to them. They didn't turn to him and ask him what he meant. Just like black people in America. They don't come and ask. They get off to themselves right there and start saying, what the heck is he talking about? Instead of turning right to him and say, excuse me, Lord, what did you mean? They go, oh, I think you mean this. Well, I thought he meant this. And then they got denominations, five percenters and splinter groups. They said, therefore, what is this that he said? They repeat the same thing. What's the meaning of a little while? We cannot tell what he said. We don't know what he means. Now, Jesus knew that they were, what, desirous to ask him and said unto them. He knew that they wanted to ask him a question, but didn't. So he said what? Do you inquire amongst yourselves of that I said a little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me? Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, unto you, that ye shall not weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He said, I'm trying to tell you that everybody's going to think that I am dead, and you're going to be brokenhearted, and then you're going to see me again. And that's what happened when he came in the upper room. They were joyful when they found out that he had not died on the cross. Refer to the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 36. Yeah, it's very simple. Now, why don't they preach that? Because they don't understand it. Because that's my job. That's why I'm here. They don't understand. I'm here to make these things clear so y'all can go out. I'm like the spirit of truth. It's up to y'all to take this and say, make that clear to Reverend Paul Chow or Pastor Ribs. Listen, Pastor Ribs, make this clear. You understand? And he can't do it. Then if you can't do it, then sit off the throne because you're inquiring about Jesus and he has a spokesman right on earth talking to us. He has a spokesman here preaching to us, and you're taking his words and trying to translate them your way. No, it doesn't work like that. I understand. Okay. Um, so one other thing that it kind of relates to this. So then what's the purpose of them teaching about the Holy Trinity? What's the purpose of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Okay. If they're, if they're, see, as I take it, Jesus was a prophet. He was a messenger, right? That's right. And so why prophet, are they only acknowledging... Every prophet has the Trinity in them. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said, our Father who art where? In heaven. That's the Father. He said, I am the Son of... What? Man. Son of man. That's the Son. I am the Son of God. That's the Son. And Mary shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. And that was an angel. So every man you see who acknowledges a heavenly father recognizes that he is the son and can be filled with the Holy Ghost. You see what I'm saying? They just made it out of a religion. That's their problem. Yes. They just turned it into a religion. All he meant was the father, which is in heaven, the son, which is all humanity, and the Holy Spirit, which is the angels that God us. Father, son, and Holy Ghost, Trinity. The Muslims are so confused, they think the Christians are saying three different gods. Three different gods in one, instead of just listening. They listen to each other, they coordinate, they get along. But the Muslims want to make themselves seem so intelligent, they don't really listen to what a Christian says. If you take a Christian and say, excuse me, by father, what do you mean? 
Well, let's say the father, son, Holy Ghost, be in one. Great. All that's fine. It's like a cup of tea. You can have sugar, milk, and water in between oh, yeah. one. No problem. I ain't going to follow with that as long as we differentiate the different substances that make up the cup of tea, which is milk comes from one type of creature, tea comes from another, and water from something totally different or sugar. Now, when you say father, reverend, what do you mean? I don't want to hear your interpretation. I want to hear your meaning, which you're supposed to have gotten from the word of the Holy Spirit, because they just open your mouth and the Holy Spirit will put his words into it. I want you to tell me by Father Rev, what do you mean? Jesus said, my Father, I am not greater than he. I just quoted him saying those who rejected my Father in St. John chapter 14 and 15. My Father. So he separated himself from the Father and the Holy Spirit. If he's going to send it, can't be him. If it's going to be here when he's not here, it can't be him, the way you see it. So therefore, the angels are the spirits, the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's unholy spirits that are spiritually driving these Christian Pentecostal churches. And these people think they're being touched by our Holy Spirit, and they're being touched by unholy spirits. No Holy Spirit is going to take no old woman and pick her up out of her seat and throw her on the floor. No Holy Spirit is going to dirty your clean white dress. And knock you out. Okay. And knock you on the floor and have you foaming out your mouth. That ain't no Holy Spirit. Assalamu alaikum. Um, did Jesus accomplish what he was sent here for? Unfortunately, no. Because if he did, the book of St. John, chapter 14, and of course 15, let's read it and see what happens. He said, now, Jesus, now notice what he says. Number one, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it wasn't true, I would have told you. People say, if it was not true, I wouldn't have told you. They say it backwards. Mm -hmm. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, the Lamb returning. And where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. Where I'm going, you know, and how I'm going to leave, you already know. What did Thomas say? Lord, we know we know not whether thou goest. Jesus just told them what? They didn't know. What did they just say? They didn't know. Now, here to them, according to Christians, this is God telling them, you know what I'm getting ready to do, right? You do know. And then they say, no, we don't know. <laughs> He's showing them something. He's saying, in all that he taught them, in all the years he was here, they should know. You follow? Watch it. It goes on. And how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. See, that means they didn't understand his teachings at all. They said, how should we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now people say, see, that means everybody got to go through Jesus. Yeah, everybody in his time who he was sent to, Otherwise, he wouldn't be sending another comforter, which you'll get to. Okay? If you had known me, 
Ye should have known my father also. Now, did he call himself God there? No. He laid right there. He made it clear. He said, if you knew me, you'd know my father. Our father who art in heaven, not here on earth inside me. If you would have known me, you would have known my father. Go ahead. And from henceforth, ye know him. And have seen him. There it is. Now, go ahead. Philip say unto him, Lord, show us the Father. Which means rabbi. So now Christians say, see, that means when they say seen him, that means that Jesus was the Father incarnate, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what Philip, but Philip said, okay. He looked right past Jesus and said, well, show him to us then. Then we see him. So they did not see Jesus as God. Read it again. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And now I watch how Jesus said, so that means... If you show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. Therefore, you have seen the Father. And they said, okay, now, where is he? <laughs> they didn't see him as him. Watch what Jesus says now. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Wait, he that that was a question, not a statement. <laughs> he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Why? And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Go ahead. Believest thou not that I am in the Father? And? The Father in me? Not I am the Father, and the Father is me. But I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The same light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He blew into man of his spirit, and man became a living soul. He created man in his image and after his likeness. Every man is endowed with the spirit of the Most High. When you see a righteous man, you see the spirit of the Father. When you see a righteous man, you see the spirit of the Holy Ghost. You see the manifestation of the Heavenly Father. Jesus ain't saying nothing unusual. When you see me, you see the Father, because I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Go ahead. And the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But what do you say? The words I speak to you, I don't speak of myself, but... Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Not Jesus. Jesus is not telling people to pray to him. Jesus is telling people that the spirit of the Father is moving in him. It's his works. Jesus said it's not my work. It's the works of the Father which is in him. In me. Please stop blaspheming the name of the Father by combining him with his son. Go ahead. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. Or else just believe me by the miracles and signs that you see I've done. Go ahead. Verily or truly, truly, I say unto you, he yeah. that believeth on me, the works that I do, what? He do also. Does that mean that the Father will be working through them also? Yes. Yes, indeed. That's all it means, that you too can receive the Holy Spirit and become a son of God and do the works of the Father. You too. Go ahead. And greater works than these shall he do. Now, if Jesus is the heavenly Father himself, can any man do greater than the heavenly Father, I ask you? Yes no. or no? No. You can't do greater than the heavenly Father, right? That's well, he just said here that the disciples are going to do greater works than him. Well, if he is God, how can you do greater works than God? 
Impossible. Go ahead. Because I go unto my father. I'm going to my father, not him. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He didn't say, whatsoever you ask in my name, the Father will do. He said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Christians be saying something different. They be saying, if you ask in the name of Jesus, God will bless you. If you ask in the name of Jesus, Jesus will bless you as an angel. As a guide, as a spirit. But that's not the we'll go ahead. <laughs> if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Israel. And from Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, 
to ascend to El or to wrestle with or to verse, to try to take to heaven. His name was changed to Israel. He got from Jacob, whose name became Israel, 12 sons and one daughter. The fourth son, Judah, and the second son, Levi, were the most powerful. Then, from that, we got the last son, after Benjamin, we get, which is Benjamin, son of the right hand, we get Yusuf, called Joseph. Joseph was taken into captivity in Egypt, married, had two kids called Ephraim and Manasseh. They became classified as part of the family, and Levi became known as Levi, the high priest, and Judah left and went to the south. The migration of Judah to the south is why they have such a conflict in Ethiopia today, but they can't get organized who are the Falashians and who are the black Jews. Well, let's take that out right now. Because <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. When they speak of Suleiman having a wife who came from Yemen up to him and got impregnated and went back down and gave birth to a son named Memlech, that is one descendancy that got into Ethiopia. But they also speak about a remnant of the house of Judah that, that migrated uh, to the south and went into Ethiopia. The ones who went into Ethiopia of the Judah are called Falashians, migrants. The ones who came down by way of the Sheba to a son Memlech are called Habashians, Ethiopians, and they're called black Jews. They left before the Mishnah and the Talmud, so they don't have all these hadiths that the modern-day so-called Jew live by. They live by the, the basic five books. But the ancient ones, called Palashians, lived up in the mountains. And they came from the original tribe of Judah, who also had portions of the tribe of Dan with them. So these people are going into Ethiopia, and they're taking Coptic Christians who put yarmulkes on, and taking them into Israel, and saying these are black Jews when they're not. Okay, to answer your question, the name Ben-Israel means the children of Israel. The only remaining seed of Israel is Judah. The rest of them have perished. And Jesus himself said that he only came for the lost seed of the house of Israel, Judah only. Because in his time, that's all you could find. You could find male servants and women servants who were people who were converted to Judaism, as it was called, as it's called today, and calling themselves Jews, just like in Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's time, you'll find many people who said they were Jews in Medina, but they were not of the house of Israel. The original house. The original house of Israel blew their covenant and perished. The book of Kings will, will, will explain that to you. Okay? So the Ben Israel, you find black people in the Western world today saying they're Ben Israel. You can say anything you want. You are Abraham's descendants. If you've been baptized in another religion, and even though you may understand, there are things that you don't know. And when you find out that, yes, you know, I know differently now. How does that hold? Let me, let me answer that. That's the answer. That's the answer this way. That a lot of people pledge allegiance to Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus himself is pledging allegiance to his heavenly Father. A lot of people are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and not in the name of the Father that sent him. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, holy is thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Lord is my shepherd, which is from the same statement of him being the sheep or the lamb. So the point is a lot of people are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ when they should have been baptized in the name of the Father that sent Jesus Christ. If all of, so if a person is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they still have to be born again. He himself classified himself as a man. It was a mortal that wanted to make him a deity or make him a deity. 
But he was a deity. He was not the deity. The big difference. You follow what I'm saying? So if a person is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, when they get ready to become what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And no Christians are called the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. When they finally make that baptism, then they're truly born again. You follow that? When they, when they undergo the persecution that Jesus said they would, blessed he was persecuted after righteous name's sake. I don't know any Christian who gets persecuted for becoming Christians. But the moment you tell your mother you're a Muslim, you got to be brainwashed. And these people are crazy. Then the persecution starts. Muslims all over the world are being persecuted. It's not so much of whether you're Christian or you're Jew, but the moment you say Muslim, then the persecution comes in. And the Messiah that the Christians are claiming is theirs, which is Jesus who was not a Christian, right? He himself said, blessed is he who is persecuted after righteous name's sake. For his is the kingdom of heaven. It says, great is his reward in the kingdom of heaven because they persecuted the prophet which was before you. Now, Jesus made this statement. And Jesus was a prophet. And he was speaking in a future tense. And who was Jesus talking about? Name another prophet that came after Jesus in Israel. There is none. The only other prophet who came that believed in what they referred to as monotheism, which is not the right meaning, but one deity, was the prophet Muhammad. He was the only other man that came that believed in all the books of Moses and all the teachings of Abraham. So when Jesus was saying that, he was saying to Muhammad, blessed are the peacemakers. Muhammad just happened to be the man that comes along and picks up the title Muslim, which means peacemaker. Calls his way of life Islam, which means peace. Coincidentally, that when Jesus, who was the last prophet of Israel, because he said right in the Bible, I came to my own and they received me not. But as many as do, I get the power to become as sons of God. So he had finished his mission for the children of Israel, but he was the last prophet of Israel. And they rejected him. Then he spoke right in St. John, but after me I will send another comforter, which confirmed what was mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, when Moses was told that another prophet would come after him, like him. Also confirmed in St. John, when they asked John the Baptist, was he the prophet? They separated Messiah, so they asked him, are you the Messiah? Which we later learned was Jesus Christ. But the word Christ is translated to the Latin comes from the word Messiah. So therefore, when they asked John the Baptist, was he that Messiah? We understood that that was Jesus. Then they said, and are you the prophet? Which they put in another kind of, this is another person. Another prophet that was destined to come. Who was this prophet if Jesus was standing there talking and he was talking in a future tense? Who was this prophet that was to come after Jesus in the future tense? And let me give you some of the clues to the attributes that he used. Jesus refers to this person as a comforter, which just so happens to translate to the Greek, to the Latin, to Ahmed. Ahmed is another way of saying Muhammad. Same word. Now, just coincidentally, that's there. Then coincidentally, Jesus said, bless all the peacemakers. And this prophet comes and calls his followers Muslim. From the word salam, which Jesus said, when he walked into the upper room, and he said, salam alaikum, dear disciples, peace be unto you. So he understood the word salam in his mind. He didn't say shalom, he said salam alaikum, right in the Bible. He understood the name, and he understood the meaning of the word peace. Yet he said, bless all the 
peacemaking. And this is future tense. Jesus is talking. What man came after Jesus said, A, was a prophet. Like Moses, which means he was a lawgiver, because it says right in the book of St. John's again, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So they acknowledged, Jesus acknowledged Moses as a lawgiver, and a law that he himself said that he did not come to change, but to confirm. So he was not trying to mess up the law of Moses. He was still living according to the Israelite law. You follow that? And now who is this man, like Moses, who came with a, a text, a scripture, a lawgiver, who also referred to his followers as peacemakers, who were persecuted all over the world because of their religion, and who had a prophet who came after Jesus. Muhammad. Only one man who came along, whose name was Ahmed, comforter, right? Who called his followers peacemakers, Muslims, who brought forth a law, El Quran, and was and was referred to in the Quran as the seal of the prophet. Who glorified Jesus' name because he kept referring to Jesus Christ in the Quran as the Messiah. The Quran has Isa el Messiah in it. The Quran says Isa el Maryam. Just by virtue of him calling Jesus the Messiah and Messiah, in the Arabic word Messiah means to wipe something clean. From the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah, meaning to anoint. From the Latin, which they get to the Greek, Christ, Christos, to be sacred, to be holy, to be pure. So Muhammad in the Quran was constantly glorifying Jesus' name just by virtue of saying Jesus the Messiah. Because Jesus said in the books of St. John, when the Comforter comes, he shall glorify my holy name. And his holy name was Isa el Messiah. Because he became holy after he was anointed by John the Baptist. When he got his messiahship. You see that? <laughs> Who else would Jesus have been talking about? The Christ was telling them to expect somebody else. And he wasn't talking about the angel because he said he'd be full of the angel. He'd be full of the Holy Ghost. Right? Because Jesus, when he got baptized in John, they said the angel came down in the dark and lighted upon him and dwelled there. He stayed there. Who was this angel? What angel came to Mary in the form of a man? Right. And said, Hail Mary, thou have been chosen above the women of the world. And what did Mary say? She said, Glory be to you, no man has touched me. How can I have a child? And they said, The Lord Mary declares a thing. And it is. Kun fire kun. Exists and it exists. And she was covered of the Holy Ghost and did conceive. And they said, this thing which is in your womb is a holy thing of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, he will be called the Son of God. <laughs> they tell you right in the Bible why. Why Jesus was called the Son of God? Because Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost from God, the Word of God. I'm using God for y'all. I'd rather use Allah. And I use Allah, not because I like it so much, but because Jesus also used it. Because if you believe Jesus is the one that says, Eli, Eli, lama sabakini, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? I'd like to equate Eli. And does you tell me, does Eli sound closer to Allah, or does it sound closer to God? <laughs> so in your Bible, Jesus uses Eli. He's using the word Allah when he says, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? If you believe that was Jesus on the cross, then you're going to have to come to the grips that he didn't use God either. 
Because Eli is not with a Hebrew word for Elohim. But once they get Elohim, Elohim is the plural like Alahoma. So Jesus didn't use the word God. Nor did he use the word Jehovah. The word Jehovah was not put together until the 14th century. Jesus would have never even understood what they were talking about if they called themselves Jehovah's Witness. However, John did come to bear witness to the light. So the word witness is true. The word Jehovah is a mistranslation of the word Yahuwah. To be clear, that's true. But when you make it a religion, that's when you make the mistake. <laughs> because that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus told you what the children of God in the last day will be called, right in the Bible in Matthew. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The 144,000. He told them that you see them, the 144,000 will be gowned in white. Right? The cardinals wear red, and the fathers wear black. <laughs> Are they ignoring what Jesus is saying? They went totally opposite. I mean, I'm quite sure they read the book of Revelations like all of us have. Don't they see that Jesus' followers are supposed to wear white? What are they, maliciously ignoring it? They think one little knot of white in their throat, <laughs> one little slash of white up here is sufficient when Jesus said downed in white remnant. Don't tell me that that is symbolic of a state of mind because it said downed. Your mind does not get downed. They playing with your mind. And when they play with your mind, they're playing with your soul. And when they play with your soul, they're interfering with the path to paradise, to the garden. And that's just dangerous. Be explicit when you talk. Jesus said, when you see that spirit, test that spirit. Y'all go to church and you don't question. Question reverence. See if he knows what he's talking about. Because he is driving your spirit. He's stealing your spirit. And that's every imam and every teacher that stands up to teach you. Question them the way you come here and ask questions. Anybody won't get up like this and walk back and forth and talk to you and say, now ask me a question. They're afraid of something. They don't believe what they're teaching yet. Or they're not studying what they're teaching. You understand what I'm saying? Because if you believe in what you're teaching and you've studied it, then you should be able to get up here and be questioned about it. And defend it according to what you teach from which is the scripture. And if you read any of those law pamphlets, one thing you will see that is saturated with scripture. Every other verse. You can read books from Pakistan, and you can read books from all over the world from Muslims, and they'll do a whole lot of running off of a hadith, and they'll put that Quran in there. One or two chapters from the Quran. If you ain't in the Quran, the Torah, and the Injil, then you're not in the north of Allah. You're not in the light. The light is intellect. And you've got to be able to be challenged. You cannot be mad at people because they want the right to question you about what you're saying to them. And it tells you right in the, in the book of Revelation, because the iniquities of men are so great, the hearts of many are wax cold. You know what that means? We don't know what to believe in no more. Everything sounds right. You get confused. But you have one gift. And that gift is intellect. And with that intellect, you have the option to question until you're satisfied. And if you go to any religious meeting, any organization, and they don't allow you to question, you might as well get up and leave before they program you. Because you can be programmed by people who talk fast. And not just people who are in my church. 
or in my congregation? When is the public going to just be able to sit down and ask questions? Nobody can't get that close. And if you can't get that close, then you can't touch the spirit. If you can't touch the spirit, you're in the wrong room. Because your soul is what you're dealing with. Not my soul, not his soul, that is what you're dealing with. Your soul. And your soul must be satisfied. Nobody else's. And your brother can tell you anything he wants about what we're teaching him. <laughs> he can drill you as much as he feels like about these teachings. But it won't be it won't be enough until you are satisfied in him. And when that finally when that door flings open, that truth you say, Now I know where I belong. Or I don't know. Now them answer are crazy. I don't want to be there. That is your what? It's your decision. And nobody can take that away from you. And many people are going to tell you, don't go over there to those answers. They're crazy. Right? Them brothers are nuts. Listen to them brothers over there. They do this. They, they work the Bible. They do this. All kind of crazy stuff. But you're still sitting here. Why? Because the divinity in you, the divine in you says, I want to hear for myself. I have that right. It is the following verse, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 6. Daniel chapter 9, verse 29, and Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, refer to Revelation chapter 12, verse 2. How do the former and latter relate to the times we live in? Does it refer to Revelation chapter 12, verse 2? No. This quote is talking about the birth of the new Zion. Zion is being used as a symbol of the woman. If you read it, you see that. It's talking about the children of Israel. Jeremiah is talking about when King David comes to the throne. As if you read down a little further in that quote, you would have seen that. None of these quotes relate to Revelation. What people tend to do is they tend to take quotes out of the Old Testament and try to apply them to the New Testament by accident, not understanding that the people who wrote the New Testament was writing it from the Old Testament, so they tried to make it sound like it came from there. But most of the things in the history of the Old Testament apply to the rise and fall of different kings in the house of Israel. Like Jeremiah, which we were speaking about, has to do with the coming of David, the king, the throne. It says right in it, it'll be when David ruled the throne. All right? When you go down from 6, 7, 8, 9 of 30, you'll come up with 9. But they shall serve the Lord, their creator, and David, their king, whom I will raise future tents up unto them. So this is way before Revelation was even revealed, because they put this in the future tense. David, their king, whom I shall, you see the word shall? shall raise up unto them. Which means that this was prior to David's time, because it was Jacob who they were speaking to, and was speaking about when Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and when David would be raised up. That's what they were speaking about in Jeremiah, in the 30th chapter. And in Isaiah chapter 66-7, they're talking about the, the birth of Israel itself. They, they say, before she travailed, she brought forth before her pain came, and she delivered a man-child. This man-child they're speaking about is Jacob, whose name is Israel, because the nation of Israel came out of her, came out of Jacob. And we'll go on to explain that. Someone read, number eight. Who have heard such a thing? Who have seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? See, it's speaking of a nation. All these are questions about what they were talking about. For shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion, which is the, the word Jerusalem in the Greek, Zion is Jerusalem, travailed, she brought forth her children. Now that's plural. Her became plural. You see? Her, the single word for her children, speaking of Jerusalem out of Jacob, 
who was that male Charlie Booker, who had his name changed from Jacob to Israel and became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel of which Zion was built and the reestablishment of the temple. He had to be real careful when we read the Torah because so few people understand the scriptures that they like to make things from the New Testament fit in the Torah the same way a lot of Muslims try to make things in the Hadith match the Quran when they don't. These are writings of men and they sometimes get them confused. The stories of the Torah are usually self-explanatory and the, the things of the New Testament, Revelations and the books written by Paul and etc. were things written after the Torah. So these men, it was very easy for them to try to make things sound like it was the Torah because they had already had the Torah in their hands. You see, if they never had the Torah, it would be very difficult to make the Emmanuel of the New Testament look like he's the Emmanuel of the Old Testament. Then they would have to have divine inspiration. But nowhere in Christianity is divine inspiration necessary. Why? Because they used all their prophecies on the Old Testament, which was already divinely inspired to Moses and the various prophecies for him. You understand what I mean? All they had to do is look back in there and then write their book to make it look like it. That's a very interesting thing that Christians don't seem to realize is 90% of the things they preach and prophesy are things that were previously written. Nothing in the New Testament can make anything look like it's divine because there's nothing said in there that's new. Everything in there is coming from explanation of the Torah with Isa and Maryam, which is Jesus, the son of Mary, said that he did not come with any law, but the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through him. Telling them that the law of the, of the five books of Moses were the law he followed by, not the new laws formed by them. So Paul and people who were trying to pervert the teachings to teach the Gentiles, though they were told not to teach the Gentiles by Jesus, they wanted to teach the Gentiles anyway because they couldn't convert the Yahudi who spoke Hebrew. They couldn't reach them because they couldn't explain the doctrine in detail. So what they had to do is form their own doctrine to teach the Gentiles, which is the teachings that are spreading throughout the Western world and most of the, of the world today called Christianity, the teachings of Paul, the self-acclaimed apostle, which is just like in Islam today, you find many people, Muslims going from country to country, calling themselves sheikh and imam and picking up certain titles, Pakistanis, Afghanistanis, Maghribians, Sudanese, and these people are not teaching the Quran, they're teaching Hadith, they're teaching Sirah, they're teaching the history of Islam, but they cannot teach out of the Quran itself, because they don't understand it. But what they did is that scholars write a bunch of collections of books called Ahadatha, or Hadith, traditions and tales about what Rasulullah Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did or said, which cannot be checked or confirmed by the Quran in most cases. And they started living by those and not living by the Quran. And when you confront them with the Quran and say, Zalik al this is a scripture of Allah and there's no doubt in it, they immediately say what the Hadith says. He say, well, in the Quran it says, don't do this, they say what the Hadith says. And they start quoting men like Bukhari and Shafi and Muslim and Abu Huraira, as opposed to quoting men like Ibrahim, Musa, Isa, Yunus, Yaqub, which are the men of the Torah, who are mentioned in this Quran. I'm saying that to say Muslims are just as in such a state of darkness as the Christians were insofar as they do more quoting of Hadith than they do the very words of Allah, the way the Christians do more quoting of Paul and people like that than they do Jesus, because 90% of the things that you ask the Christians did Jesus say it? They have no answer. Show me where Jesus said this. Show me. It's always Paul said it, or Peter said it, or Matthew said it. But where did Jesus say it? You follow? So I'm trying to make that to show you this. how you pull out three good quotes and say it doesn't supply to Revelation. It's very difficult to match the Old Testament and the New because the people who wrote the New Testament already had the Old Testament in their hands. So they could make it sound like it fitted. They could make anything sound like anything they want because they already had the book. Like out of one book, 
and I can I can write a book now and make it sound like you're the prophecy if I use the Torah to make you sound like you're the New Testament. But will it match up is the thing. What it is, is men have got away from the truth of these ways of life, you follow, which would be the religion of Abraham and have formed the religion of Jesus, the religion of Jacob, and the religion of Muhammad. You see, alayhi salatu wasalam. And that's where the problem comes in. Very difficult to master scriptures. It takes a lot of skill. It doesn't happen by luck. We will return with the true light after this brief intermission. Now is the time to ask questions of your leaders, teachers, and preachers. Where did all the races of people come from? Why did John have to baptize Jesus at the Jordan? And why do the four Gospels contradict each other? The answer to these questions can be with only one man, as Saeed El Imam Israel Hadiyah Mehdi, the man who has written over 150 books on such topics as, Is There Life on Other Planets? How were the pyramids built? What race was Adam and Eve? And was the Holy Quran made up by Muhammad, or was it a divine scripture sent from the Most High? And what is the difference between the spirit and the soul? The answer to these questions can be found in the most dynamic books in history, authored by As-Sayyid Al-Imam Yisrael Hadiyah Mehdi. These books can be purchased at the original Tempsikita at 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. Would you like to see the man behind the voice you hear teaching the total truth? He is there at the Hall of Knowledge, located at 548 Hart Street, Brooklyn, New York. Every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m., the Nubian Islamic Hebrews would like to invite you to question and answer classes with As-Sayyid Al-Imam Yisrael Hadiyah Mehdi. Come listen and learn. Hear the words of truth for yourself. Hear the answers to long-awaited questions. Also for your spiritual growth, an intricate design woven prayer rug designed by the hand of Sayyid Ali Mamisal Hadiyah Mahdi. Also available are prayer beads, incense, and oils. If you would like any further information on these items, contact the original Tents of Kidar, 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11221. And be sure to ask for a listing of the most dynamic books in history, authored by Sayyid Ali Mamisal Hadiyah Mahdi. Now let us continue with the true light. Remember, you are the light, and you have the power over all things. First, Allah taught me many years in Quran how to live and how to raise my children. But the Hadith taught me things that it made me the woman that I am today. Allah sent the angel Gabriel with the word to the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that on the last days there would be more Muslims in clothes and in names than by faith and that the believers would be all alone in the world and I'd be a witness to that. And um, sometimes, you know, it's better to be alone and just wait for Allah to come for you. But you have to understand that when you, I understand what you're saying. When you read the Quran and you read sections that say, وَتَصْرِمُوا بِالْحَبِّ اللَّهِ and hold on to Hablallah as a jama'ah, as a community. You said all the right things. You want to set your life pattern after Prophet Muhammad, right? Yes. But the Prophet Muhammad left Mecca because they couldn't practice and went to Medina and set up a what? A community called the Ummah. Yes. And he lived in this community and he said laws around a community of Baytamal, everything of the Madrasa, you know, the khalwa of Quranic classes, this was community living. He, Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, enjoined that. 
that a point of a hadith is that I understand fully that you can get guidance from hadith on how to do certain things. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is you can do that with the Jehovah Witness book or Seven Day Adventist book too. And to them it looks right. I'm saying to be safe for your children on Yawn Agri is to realize that the hadith are from men, not from Allah. We do not say don't read hadith. I'm sorry read hadith. We say don't read any that does not match the Quran. That is our point. There are hadith that comply directly with the Quran. We have no right with that. It's only when you come with certain hadith. For instance, it says in hadith that when Aisha was going to Rasulullah, when the wives of Rasulullah used to have her menstruation, he used to lay his head on her lap and she would braid his hair. Uh, this is supposed to be Bukhari hadith. We know that the Quran says when a woman's on a menstruation, a man is not supposed to touch her. So somewhere on the line, somebody's misleading us, and it's too dangerous for us to try to sit here and differentiate which hadith is right and which is wrong when we have the Quran. And we could just try to live the sunnah. Instead of reading books of men, you made a very good point. The devil is very deceptive. What, that could be Bukhari and Shafi and Maliki and Humbly and too and Muslim. All those guys who write the hadith because nowhere in the Quran does it tell me and you to expect the hadith to come. And see, there's another thing Muslims do. Muslims throughout the Arab world take the, the New Testament of the Bible of St. John and say that the comforter is Muhammad. But when it comes to the far way, he shall not speak of himself. Only that which he hears shall he speak. Then all of a sudden, they become numb on me. Because if Muhammad was not to speak of himself, then there'd be no sayings of Muhammad. Everything he spoke would be from Allah Ta'ala by way of the angel Jibrael. And when Jibrael came to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the cave, just what did Jibrael say to him? That's all he said to him. He said, Muhammad Iqra, which means what? It means read. It doesn't mean recite. It doesn't mean to talk. Doesn't mean at the kalim, at the hadith to conversate. It means read something. Something previously written he held in front of Muhammad. And said, Muhammad, ya Muhammad, ikra. And he said, ya Jibrael, ma'ana bikarian. I am not a Qarian. I am not a reader. Because at the time, the most prominent thing men did was read poetry. He said, ya Jibrael, ma'ana bikarian. I am not one who utilizes the ability to read. He says, Aidan, again, Muhammad, yeah, Muhammad, Iqra. And he said, yeah, Jibrael, ma'am of He kept repeating it over and over again. Why did he keep repeating it? Because he was trying to get Rasulullah to recite a specific section in the Quran. Right? We Muslims know the secret of that section. What was he telling him? Muhammad, recite something in the name of someone. Who was it that he was speaking of? That's right. He was telling Muhammad to recite in the name of Allah. What is he telling him? He's saying, read Muhammad using the name of the sustainer, which is Allah, who created everything. He created man from a gushing forth fluid, which is semen. 
I mean, and your sustainer, establish that your sustainer is karama, is generous, honorable. He taught people by way of the quilt, the pen. And he taught human beings what he did not know. You see that? Then he goes on and makes a very important statement. What does it mean? But understand this, that man is an inordinate creature, a disobedient creature. You understand? He's telling us who we should rely on and who we should not rely on. And when he was giving this Quran to Muhammad, he was telling him to rely on Allah and the Quran, not men. Not men. And Bukhari and Shafi and Hamdan them are men. I don't care whether we call them the companions or not, they were men. They were not divine. We sent down the angels in that feet. And the spirit was with them in the Laylat of Qadri, in the night of power. The point is, I understand it's easier to have men explain to you how to live. But that is what's wrong. The way to live Islam is not meant to be easy. Because we're trying to earn our way back to something that we were offered by Allah as a gift, hadiyah, and we turned down. We started out in the garden, remember. We was in the same garden, Jannah. And Allah gave said, eat of everything. I've given you all of these things, but in the midst, in the center of the garden, I have to put this tree for will, for man's willpower. Don't touch it. And what do we do? We went right to it and ate of it. And he said, now that you've done that, you're going to die. You're going to know good from evil. You've split the atom, Adam. So get down from this Jannah to earth. We've done this to ourselves. Earn your way back to paradise. Earn your way back to the likeness of Allah. And that's what we've been doing. But what we, men come along in many disguises to deceive us. And this cook, but I was ask Muslims every time I meet, whether I'm in Egypt or in Saudi I say, show me anywhere in this Quran where it says we should follow somebody's hadith. Please show me. And they can't. And I say, then why should I do it? Because you say so? Because it was collected after Muhammad. Now, not while he was there. Show me, please, somebody, so I would know. I do see in this Quran multiple places where it refers me back to the Torah, where it refers me back to the Injil. I see names in here. I see Jacob. I see Isaac. I see Moses. I see Jesus. I see Jonah. I see Lot. I see Zechariah. I see Elijah. I see Elias. I see Yassin. I see Luqman. I see, I see all of these names of men who I find in the Torah. But I don't see Bukhari. I don't see Shafi. I don't see Hanbali. I don't see Maliki. I don't see Muslim. I don't see none of these men in the Quran mentioned. I read this Quran backwards and forwards many times in many parts of the world. And I asked men who were scholars when I was in a university in, in Khartoum. I asked them. When I was in university in Umdurman, I asked them. When I was in university in Cairo, I asked them. When I was in Syria, I asked them. When I was in Saudi, I asked them in Medina. And none of them could show me. I said, okay, then please show me somewhere in this Quran where it tells me not to read the Torah in the Injil. Please show me. 
and they couldn't do it. I said, show me anywhere in this Quran where it says the Torah and the Injil is tampered with, and they couldn't do it. So it doesn't say exactly. I said, but this Quran is an exact text. It doesn't make mistakes, and I'm not going to mislead my children. I know the Quran came from Allah. I know the Torah came from Allah. I know the Injil came from Allah. I know the Zubar, the Psalm came from Allah. But I don't know about these hadith. And until someone can show me them in there, I'm going to raise my children on the scriptures of Allah. And that's the Quran, the Torah, the Zubar, and the Injil, and the hadith. The Quran tells you what to follow. It says, follow Rasulullah and this text, the Quran. It does not give us an alternative. And it's frightening for the children. That, we, that, that you have to feel alone in the world when there's a community that says, well, come home where people are like you are trying, and we're going to fuss and fight in here. We're going to go through all the same thing, but we're trying at least together. And we'll fail, and we'll, we'll cry together. We'll fuss together. We'll scrape together. But we'll fight and we'll be together the way Rasulullah did with his people in the beginning. They fought together. They cried together. They got defeated together, but it was together. And that's how we have to do it. We have to be an ummah to Rasulullah. A community, a nation of his, not individuals. There's no, we can't be individuals. We gotta come together and tolerate each other. As hard as that may seem for us as a people. But um, Bismillah, Aki, I don't know. We do need hadith. It's just that you have to understand that uh, as an American, you have a problem with with language, and uh, in doing that, that, we end up getting misinformed. Like, okay, you got a Quran. If you open the Quran. If you just read it, it tells you that the Quran is the Hadith. It tells you in the Quran. That, no, no, that's what I'm saying. In the Quran, the 39th chapter, the 23rd verse will tell you that the Quran is the Hadith. It says, Allah, nevertheless, I al Hadith, right there. Allah has sent down the best Hadith. Open the Quran and look right there in Arabic, you see it. I know that. You see 23, 39, 23? says, Allah, Allah, Nazala Ahsan al Hadith. Right? You see that there? I, I'm seeing it through my eyes. I have no saying, and right there in the Arabic, it tells you that the Quran is the Hadith. Allah has sent down the best of Hadith, a scripture that is consistent, it says. Then in another section of 31, 6 through 7, it says the same thing. Wa min Man al-hadith. Don't buy hadith. All I can say is that you you don't need books by men when you have the Quran. The Quran is total, and these hadith are misguided books by mortals to take people away from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And if you were when you were studying your Quran, you was in the right guidance then. You didn't need none of those other things. You had the right guidance. And don't let anyone take you away from Allah. If you open the Quran to 2530, it'll say the same thing. And Allah, the apostle, will say, My sustainer, my people have deserted this Quran. They have deserted the Quran. It tells you right there in the Quran, the 25th chapter, the 30th and 31st verse. Waqala ar-Rasul. He's telling you that his people, the apostle has said, my sustainer, my people have deserted the Quran. 
We thus set up against every prophet enemies who are wicked. It's telling you, it's warning you against people who will go, who will leave the Quran for writings of men. Write these chapters down and study them when you get home. 45, 6 to 11. It says, woe to every sinful fabricator. It tells you right there about Hadith again. These are Allah's verses. We recite them to you truthfully. In which Hadith, besides Allah's verses, do you live in? Please, someone read that out loud. 45, 6 through 11. Read 45, 6 through 11. It tells you right there. And the word in there is Hadith. These are the communications of Allah which we recite to you with truth. Then, in what announcement? But the word here is Hadith. Big word is Hadith. And, but they translate them Pakistanis with announcement. In what Hadith? Right there in Arabic. Write the word out on the blackboard and explain it. Hadith. In which Hadith then will you put your trust in? And then it says, besides Allah and His verses, they do believe in. Woe to every sinful fabricator. It's telling us that people are going to fabricate books after this Quran called Hadith. Right in the Quran. But no one can show you in the Quran where it says you should get guidance from them. But I'm showing you in the Quran the word Hadith is in there. Saying don't follow them. Show them the words. So they'll see. Because you have to know the truth. Because the truth will make you free. Nobody can pervert or change Allah's words. The Quran has been tampered with too. Here you said that we shouldn't call Allah God. That's a but translation. Yet, but yet in the Quran it talks so much about That's a translation. God. That's why See? that's why that's not tampering the Quran. That's translation. That's why the first thing I said is you people have to let your children learn Arabic so that they don't get caught up in these confusions and these men's opinions. If those kids spoke Arabic, they would never even get to the word God because there is no word God in Arabic. But the main thing is the problem here is a lack of understanding the language and you got to care about the kids enough to get them to get the language so that they don't be sitting around doing what me and you are doing now later on in life because we could be arguing over little word meanings and waste a lot of time. But if the kids, if you get the kids to Arabic, which you can't teach them yourself, your father, then they will know the truth and it won't be so easily misled. You didn't know the word Hadith. Most people don't even know the word Hadith is mentioned in the Quran as something that shouldn't be read because the people that come over here teaching them are Pakistanians predominantly or Afghanistanians and they don't know Arabic well enough. It's a lack of understanding the language why people are so misguided. That is the whole thing. You can't compare Hadith to Quran. They're two different kind of Arabic, first of all. One is the Arabic of a man, and the other is divinely inspired from Allah. And the Arabic that's in the Hadith is not the same Arabic of the Quran. They don't even use the same terminology or grammatical structures. One of them is man's writings, and it's obvious when you read it in Arabic. And the other is divinely inspired, which is obvious when you read it in Tajweed or Tartil of Quran. This is very important. I'm not trying to verse you. I'm just trying to help you because I met many Muslims along the path of my life who have been misguided by men, and they don't realize, like I just showed you in this Quran, there are people that turn away from Allah, it says in the Quran. They turn away and they forsake the Quran for writings of men. It says it in the Quran, and it uses the word hadith in Arabic, but none of those translators put it there because they wasn't trying to wake y'all up. They didn't want y'all. They hate me. They hate me because I come along and I point out words and the meaning of words, and I'm conscious of racial differences and colors and hues and where people come from because Allah is conscious of it. They hate the fact that I point these things out. But the truth must be known. And in the scriptures, Allah tells me and you to look out for men who will give us hadith. 
simple. Right in the Quran. It's right there. I'm quite sure the brother put it on the blackboard. We have it's hadith. hadith. I keep showing. That's right. It's hadith. Del. Show me where in the Quran it says Okay. Hadith. Open your holy Quran. You got it? Yes. And open it to the 45th chapter. And we go to the 6th verse. We have, in English, they say, these are the communications of Allah. Because I believe you're using the Shia Quran also, right? Now let's look at the Arabic. Tilka ayatu Allah. These are the signs of Allah. Natluha. Alright? Which are recited alayka on, on you. Bilhaq. By way of the facts or the truth. Right? Babi ayah. And, and I listen now. You see that word? It follows that. Babi ayah. You see, ha, del, ya, teh. You see that? Then after that it says, Allah. The word you see there, right after that, fa, fa, alif, ya, is ha, del, ya, teh. That word is hadith. These are the communications of Allah, which we recite to you with truth. Then, in what hadith, after Allah's sign, by the Allah wa ayatuhu, will you believe? Woe, wailing likulli, asakin atim. Woe to every sinful liar. It's telling us right there the word. Do you see that word hadith there? In the Quran, it's telling us not to follow them. It says the Quran is what was given to you, Muhammad. Tilka ayatullah. Bil haq. So now in what? So in which thing, ayah, which is ayah, hadith. So which of these hadith, bother Allah ayatuhu, after Allah's signs, you will you put your faith? After the Quran, it says, by the law. The next word about these is by, which means after. Beh, I'm del. After the, now what is the signs of Allah? The Quran. El Quran. It says, like, at what things after the Quran are you going to put your faith? And the only book that came after the Quran is the Hadith. And it has the word Hadith right there in Arabic. It's right there. So, so Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So I keep so so Allah said Rasulullah and and we can't follow his teachings. We, we have to follow, follow yes, we have to follow his way of doing things. And where did he get his way of doing things from? He got his way of doing things from Abraham. Open the Holy Quran at chapter two, verse one thirty. It says, Wa men Yarabu and Milah Ibrahim illa Men safih nafsahu, which means wa and men, who is it? Which is ragaba, who turns away or forsakes or leaves or forgets or tries not to follow. And about Mila, the religion of Abraham, Ibrahim, illa, except for men, he who safihu is a fool. Nafsahu, within his own spirit. 
And if we go to the same chapter, the 136th verse, it says, Say, قَالُوا أَمَنَا بِاللَّهِ وَمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْنَا وَمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَائِيلَ وَإِسْحَاقَ وَيَقُوبَ وَأَسْبَاتَ Say this, Muhammad. We believe, we believe. أَمَنَا بِاللَّهِ By way of Allah. وَمَا أُنزِلَ And what was sent إِلَيْنَا to us. وَمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ And what was sent to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes of Israel. وَمَا أُطِيَ مُسَى And what was given to Moses. وَعِيسَى You see that? وَمَا أُطِيَ النَّبِيِّنَ And what was given to all of the other prophets. مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ From their sustainer. لَا نُفَرِقْ بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ No, we don't make any نُفَرِقْ No distinction بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ Between any of them. مِنْ هُمْ وَنَحْنُ لَهُ مُسْلِمُونَ And we are indeed Muslims. This is the religion we're supposed to be following according to the Qur'an. This is what Allah taught us. And this is the religion that Muhammad followed. You know why the problem comes up in America so difficult in other places? Because if he was in, let's say, Sudan, in my country, he would have been raised in the Sunnah. Because things people do in that environment are natural. as They don't need to read Hadith there. Because they've been living how to fast, how to circumcise, how to marry all this time. It's only because it's something new in America that you got to go to these books for this guidance. You follow? What the Ansars here are taught is the same way that Muhammad Ahmed al-Mahdi, alayhi salam, taught the Ansars in Sudan in the 18th century, who got it from Ali and Fatima, who was the beloved daughter of the Prophet. So in Sudan, they live a certain way. That's why our brothers wear a certain type of jalabiyya. Our women wear their face covered a certain way. Uh, we do certain things certain ways because we have our sunnah as passed down to us through a sensula. We don't have to meet our deed. We got it from our fathers. My father taught me how to pray. And my father was taught by his father, was taught by his father, who takes his descendants, he's back to Mustafa Muhammad al-Amin, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I know how to live. I don't need hadith. I never had to read it. Because I was told, don't eat with this. Eat with these fingers. Sit down when you do this. Don't touch that. Don't talk with food. And that was the sunnah of Rasulullah. That's why I'm setting up a community so people can learn to live the sunnah and not read it. So until we meet again. Allah ma'akum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah ta'ala wa barakatuh. خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم صدق الله العظيم Those are verses 1 through 5 of Salatul Allah from the Holy Quran chapter Separation of Self. Now the 96th, originally the first chapter, revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Translation by As-Sayyid Al-Mabisa Al-Hadir And it reads as follows. Begin all things with the illustrious names of Allah, the yield of the most merciful. O still of the prophets of Allah, Muhammad, by the supreme sovereignty of your sustainer and creator. 
you are being ordered to read by beginning with the name of your illustrious sustainer who created all things. He, Allah, created all human beings of a separating self. So read because your sustainer, Allah, is most generous. He uses the quill to teach. He, Allah, taught human beings what they would have never known. You have been listening to The True Light with Asaid Al-Imam Esau Hadi al The Nubian Islamic People Mission would like you to write or send questions to True Light, 719 Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 1122. And I'm not saying L. Don't fool yourself unless you can create an act. <laughs> All right, and if you get if you get to that level, I'm just saying we but we have to become who we really are. And that makes us responsible for the universe because that's what we were created to be, caretakers. Do you hear me? And somewhere along the line, something got removed from us. It got removed in Genesis. If you look at the fourth chapter and the twenty-sixth verse, you'll see where it says, and the Almighty gave Adam and Eve, another son, to replace the other one, like and in the image and after the likeness of Adam. This son, Seth, was not in the image and after the likeness of Elohim, the angelic beings responsible for the replenishing of earth. Read it again. It says, in the image and after the likeness of Adam. What state was Adam in in the fourth chapter, which is after the third chapter? Was he in a positive state or had he sinned? You see that? So Seth's seed, meaning most of you, right, were descendants from, like Adam, who had sinned. Now I talk simple, plain common sense. When you take a little baby, okay, whether it's black, white, or purple, do you have to teach that baby evil, or do they naturally take from other kids? Are they naturally possessors? You brought that? Do you realize that when your baby is hugging you and mooring on your hand and you're fascinated that what the baby's really trying to do is eat you? <laughs> do you know that? Do you think that when your baby's mooring on your hand, that's cute? Your baby is really trying to eat you. It doesn't know that you're not food. A baby will reject you, and you can say, here's a cookie, and a baby will come. That's a certain part of our nature, that same nature that got, took us to the tree. Adam's seed was not good. Howard's seed was good. Your brother, Adam's name, originally, Adam's name, not Adam. Adam's name, because it said, and call their name Adama. The word Adama means of the dust of the ground. But in that same Torah, they give you the name of Adam and Eve when they say male and female created he them and called their names Adam. Now, what is the name then? When they use the word male, the same thing happens in El Quran. They say, Zakar wa Antar. We created you male and female. Zakar wa Antar. However, the word Zakar, Zakara, has nothing to do with being a male or female agenda. It has to do with the word to remember, Zikr. You follow that? In the Torah, it says, male and female created he, them, and called their names Adam. Zakar wa Nakibu was their name. 
when you trace the Nakibu back to ancient Aramic, it means leadership and out front in power. And Nakibu was the female, not the male. Then Zachar was Adam's name. Adam doesn't mean that's his name. Adam means of the ground, a earth being as opposed to a Elohim being. There was Elohim of heaven and Elohims on earth, physical ones and spiritual ones. If you want to see it, again, in the book of Malachi, right in the fourth chapter of it, they call them the almighty God. Before all, they say God leaves. And if you flip back to your Aramis, you see they have in there Elohim al-Bashar. Right? Elohim in the flesh. Now, so you had Adam's seed, who's an Elohim, and you have Nakibu, who you call Hawa. And the reason why they call her Hawa or Haya, because it meant wind. You follow that? It meant the breath, the nachas that breathes into a person. And the reason why they say that woman comes out of man is because man decides the gender of the child, whether it's an XY chromosome, not that somebody snaps nobody's rib, rip their chest open, that's not what's in there. You're talking about a replenishing of the world, not a creation of the world. Adam and Eve were not the first people on the planet for us. You understand that? I'll give you some simple reasons why. One is, we, we use a basic biblical concept we have Cain, Abel, Adam, and Eve. Is that the basic Christian concept? How many people was that? Four people. Cain kills Abel. He eliminates one of the people. How many people are left? Who are these people? Right? Adam, Eve, and Cain. Three people. Right? Now, when... The Almighty addresses Cain concerning the killing of his brother. Cain cried that his penalty is greater than he could bear, right? And then he said he put a mark on him, right? A birthmark, exactly what it is. A birthmark on him. That what? What was what was Cain afraid of? Tell me. Anybody what? Cain was afraid that anybody finding him will kill him. Could you tell me who was going to find him if there's only three people on the planet? Who was he afraid of if there was nobody else on the planet but him, his mother and father? It wasn't his father he was worrying about. It wasn't his mother he was worried about. There must have been other people on the planet that he was worried about that would kill him. And when he left that land and went into the land of Nud, Nod, he encountered other people. There, it was already there in the Philians. Then again, they say... The man should leave his mother and his father and cling unto his wife, and they should become one flesh. Correct? If these are the first people on the planet, who was that law for before it was said to them? It didn't say you are to leave your mother and father. It said a man as if the law was already set. A man is to leave his mother and leave his father and cling unto his wife, and they're to become one flesh. If that law was set, who was it set for if there was nobody there? And nobody else got married. You follow? And why is the word refill or replenish? Because in Hebrew or Aramic, the word is bara. They don't use the word halakha. 
Yes, there is a Hebrew word, halakha, meaning creation, and it talks about the original creation that took place billions of years ago. But Adam and Eve, 49,000 years ago, was a recreation of barra. And look it up in Hebrew. You see right there, barra. And that means to remake, to remodel, or to rebuild, not to create. Allah says, Kun Fayakun. Allah says, Kun Fayakun. In existence, and it's B, or how you say B, it shall be. That's all. Boom. But when you And you give a light work to Joe. I do know that if I can get it into you, and you go back out to the world, 
you will set the record straight. Right. Thank <laughs> you. 
second year older because he can stuck in the body. He knows the bones are weak again. He would never have a woman flop up out that chair and bounce down on that ground. Bone is bone out of her mouth like she's having an epileptic fit. And the church covered that demonic possession of and said she's filled with the Holy Ghost. Which Holy Ghost, fool? I don't see that in here. Tell me in here. He said, well, in the books of Acts. What about the books of Acts? It says, speaking in tongues, not in this book it don't. It says, listen on don't that mean that there is an original a classical language that has been broken down into a colloquial language and becomes a dialect? And you're saying that in Acts 3, the Holy Ghost comes on the day of Pentecost and as a light of fire. God is using fire. You said to me that fire is the tool of the devil. And that tranquility and bliss and peace is the tool of God. But in the day of Pentecost, and peace is the tool of God. But in the day of Pentecost, while a deceptive, deceiving, punk ass, shifty ass disciples who ran their ass off when Jesus had a problem, after saying over and over again, Lord, we with you, Lord, we with you, when it came to God, you sit with a state God that them niggas ran. How you going to desert God? Can I walk with you there? Can I do it there? In the sun, a man's head is cut off. In the midst of everybody. And Jesus, the real Jesus, when you people were sitting there who think I don't recognize the real Jesus, they got the wrong story. The real Jesus sweeps down and sits the man up and put his back on and put a sacrifice. What kind of person would not believe that? If you were standing there, if you were the Muslim, if you were a Hindu, or Buddhist, or a Christian, and you were standing there, and someone stopped somebody there on the front of you, and the man that you heard was God and God ain't, and never thought, and it was a necessity. A portion of God in the flesh, he beat down and takes the man's head up and puts his back on and don't bleed and no stitches. Would you believe that? You tell me what soldier, centurion, or Jew that was standing there trying their time. When that happened, they wouldn't believe it. And you tell me who wrote the story of them taking them away. But I was a soldier just to get you. And this man is Jesus, and he puts your hair back on. Ain't nowhere in the world taking him into custody. 